everyone. Welcome back to Metastation. I'm Erin, and uh, we have a special guest here with us today, back on the podcast, Jason Rothenberg. Hi, Jason. Hey, guys. Hey, everyone. How are you? Good. How are you? I'm excellent. I was going to do my not answer your question joke, but uh, (laughs) wouldn't have been funny the second time. Yeah, we already <laughs> derailed for five minutes on that, so it's all good. As you can hear from the laughter, Claire is also here. Um, Hi, guys! <laughs> and silently in the background, uh, beating Jason with a club so he doesn't give away spoilers is Jason's assistant, B.A. So everyone say hello to B.A. Um, Jason uh, graciously agreed to come back on the podcast to do an interview again. And recently, he was slated to come do a panel at the Unity Days convention in Vancouver, uh, but unfortunately, due to production schedule requirements, he had to cancel. So since we were going to have him back on, and since he didn't get to go to the convention and talk to other fans, we thought it would be a kind of fun idea to try to bring at least the Q&A part of the con to the podcast so that Jason had a chance to sort of hear some questions from other fans and fans had a chance to sort of get questions to him. So we opened up, um, we took an, a, an open call for questions on um, Twitter a couple weeks ago, like three or four weeks ago. We got an amazing response. We got 215 questions, I think, which is just like insane. I mean, we, I, we wind up shutting it down early because we're like, we already have so many more questions than we possibly can answer. So thank you to everyone who sent them in. And really, really great questions. Amazing questions. Like so many great um, questions. For all 215 of them were really nice. They, yeah, they, they were. Everyone was yeah. so polite. Um, so we picked we picked about 15 or 16 or but those sort of collectively we picked some uh, that we thought, well, basically that Jason wanted to answer that we thought weren't going to be spoilery or whatever. And um, we're going to toss those at Jason now for as long as we have him then, and also ramble and, you know, go off topic and talk yeah. about other things as well, as we always do. Yeah. So uh, before we start, so quick disclaimer, um, we told Jason um, and his team that they would, of course, get sort of final approval for spoilers and things like that. They said we have to cut. So if any point when you're listening, there's like a weird like there's a glitch or sound disappears or things get cut off, you know, we're going to sort of be we're going to let them tell us those things we have to sort of edit out. So um, other than that, we're just kind of powering right on through. So we yeah. are very excited. We have a really cool list of questions. We're going to have a lot of fun. Erin, uh, take it away. Okay. So our first question uh, comes from Denise, uh, and she is at DC Jeffrey on Twitter. Um, and she's also the mother of Robin Jeffrey from the Aficionados, our, our good pod crew friends. Um, Denise is awesome. And um, I, th- we, I thought this was a good question to start with because this is actually the question that Denise asked everyone at Unity Days, like whenever she, you know, at all the, the, the actor panels and stuff. This is the question she, she asked them. So we're bringing a little piece of Unity Days uh, to Jason at this one. <laughs> <laughs> so Denise's question okay. is, um, not taking into account how it goes down on the 100 season five, just in general, would you rather spend five years in space with only six other people or five years underground with a hundred people? It's very hard for me to answer that because of course I know exactly how it goes down. Right. My my answer would be neither. (laughs) Claustrophobic. And so the idea of being in a spaceship for six years with six people 
terrifies me. And mm-hmm. the idea of being in an underground bunker for six years, unable to get out ever, terrifies me. Mm-hmm. I think I would choose make me a nightblood, let me live with Clark and Maddie and Eden and, you know, yeah. learn to fish and things like that. So uh, <laughs> I choose uh, C, Clark and <laughs> Aaron, what about you? Um, I pick space. I totally pick space. I, I I didn't know that I got to make up option C being on Earth and Eden with Clark and Maddie, but I'm going with Jason. Yeah. I would definitely, that would, for sure, I would definitely do that. Well, I mean, I would too, but I feel a little bit like that is cheating. Uh, that was not Denise's I, question. I, I wasn't going to call Jason <laughs> like, out. <but> I, <laughs> no, I wasn't either, but I'll call you out. We have oh, that kind of. Oh, okay. I see how it is. <laughs> So I think if, if, so Jason, if option C was prime by it, if there's no Clark option and you had to pick, which one would you pick? If there was no option C, you're saying option C is death? Yeah. Uh, op- yeah. So your choices are prime by bunker or space. I would, not knowing the way it goes down, I would probably yeah. choose the bunker because the bunker has a farm and it has an underground aquifer and there's much more space uh spaceship is like literally a tin can it's only the ring after all recall remember yeah uh, that's true and and you know you could probably die at any second if the oxy if the life support systems went down so i would choose the bunker for sure knowing how it goes down i would definitely choose space Interesting. oh Interesting. okay well, <laughs> well, that's dark. <laughs> exactly. Does that does that hint at where things are going? It does. Yeah. Yes. yes, it does. Yeah. I'm yeah. assuming if if uh, you're still talking about it, VA has not thrown things at you, so it's not too much of a spoiler. <laughs> no, that's. I don't think that's too much of a spoiler. I think um, we find out fairly quickly. Yeah. That um, also sort of feels like something I think we could extrapolate just from what we know of, like, who is where. Like, you have a half a dozen people that are pretty good friends, and then you have 1,200 people with all of this sort of history of, of enmity and conflict. It feels true. like, if I was just blindly guessing, I would say, like, yes, space is probably more chill. Yes, yes. that's true. Good point. This is much more chill. Yeah. <laughs> also, they don't have weapons in space. You know, I feel like if they get really upset, the worst is going to happen is they have like a, you know, a tussle or a fist fight. Whereas yeah. in the bunker, you know, there's like. Yeah, things in the bunker. Yeah. Things in the bunker get really, really, really bad. All so right. Good to say. I would say uh, that's something that people can look forward to. It's definitely <laughs> uh, hell under the ground for mm. sure dante's inferno is something we turn to quite often when we thought about that story oh, oh. intriguing you just spiked the sales of dante's inferno <laughs> amazon is going to see a random uptick <laughs> in sales yeah. of dante's inferno <laughs> read it like they didn't in high school i don't think i did in high school i was supposed to i'd probably did. <laughs> I, you know, I, I've only read like I have pieces of it here and there, but I have never read the whole thing, so I'll have to work on that. Yeah, I'm Catholic. <laughs> you think I would have, but I haven't. So next question, uh, this is from Anna, uh, and 
She wanted to know how early in the season slash writing process did you know which characters would end up in the bunker slash space slash alone on the ground? First, I want to say hi to Denise for her last question and thank her for uh, asking it and for writing in. I didn't oh. say Oh, yeah. Uh, She's the best. Hmm. The best. Is she DC? What's her Twitter DC, handle? DC, DC Jeffrey. Jeffrey. Yeah. Yeah. DC what? Jeffrey. DC Jeffrey. DC Jeffrey. I'm thinking of somebody else. Um, I think. But anyway, Anna, how early in the season do we, do we, did I know which character would end up where? You know, it, as we break a season every year, it's a constant sort of process of, changing and refining and coming up with better ideas. And, you know, I came in uh, at the start of the season and I knew that the death wave was coming uh, and that there was no way to stop it. It was just going to be about surviving it. And the only way to do that is to either get above it or get below it. Um, And so, you know, those were the two things that we knew going in. Uh, and then slowly but surely the idea of turning Clark into a nightblood and having her stay behind and, and, you know, that that sort of took shape. It's a little bit of a rolling process is, I guess, what I'm saying. And so once the three sort of arenas manifested where we knew we were going to have to get a certain number of people in space, a certain number of people in, in the bunker, which, you know, obviously a lot of story then had to be uh, directed at finding the bunker. Mm-hmm. Um you know, we knew obviously in the beginning that we were doing that because to to get a show uh, produced, we have to start building sets early. So we were building the bunker set and we were building Becca's lab, which we knew we were going to find um, at, a, at some point, uh, you know, early enough in the season. I think well, I can't remember what episode we find Becca's lab in. I want to say five or six, four. It was early. It was so like that's interesting. Four or five. Yeah. It was. I think it was four. So there yeah. are. So you guys sort of. You have sets before you have necessarily the story kind of mapped out of how those sets get introduced. That's interesting. Yeah. I guess I mean, it makes sense because you have to start like you have to start actually physically making things. Yeah. By necessity, we need to know. So every year and this is this jumps ahead to answer one of your later questions. But I kind of have to know going in uh, where we're going. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. So we do need to build our new sets from, you know, early on and in, in before we start shooting, obviously. Yeah, yeah, yeah. A lot of times we walk onto those sets for the first time and literally the paint is still drying. This this season, uh, in, in season five, as we walked into, I'm trying to remember, I think it was the church set for the first time, the painters were literally still in there <laughs> while, while we were shooting another scene in the morning and then we went into the, you know, careful wet paint set. Oh, my God. <laughs> it's pretty crazy. And and because of that, we knew, obviously, Becca's lab had a rocket in it. And that rocket, which we were also building early on, wasn't going to be very large. And so we knew the, the party in space needed to kind of be a select few people. Right. Uh, the bunker, you know, obviously holds many, many more people. So right, you know, right. then it becomes about orchestrating uh, your guest lists, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> um, trying to figure out who would both make the best team, have the most conflict in some instances, who we wanted to separate for six years, mm-hmm. what would be the most dramatic uh, separations, I felt. Obviously, separating brother and sister, mm-hmm. separating. Clark and Bellamy, mm-hmm. separate, um, 
Clark from her mother. You know, I felt, I felt, you know, those are the types of things we, those were easy calls. And then, you know, what to do with Echo when she got banished and, and, and then the sort of blanks get filled in as we go through it episode by episode. Yeah. This is like fascinating to me because I don't, I mean, like it, it makes perfect sense as you're saying it just in terms of the logistics of how television is made. Like, of, of course you have to sort of construct the physical worlds first and the story comes from that. But like in my head, I always sort of assumed it was a total opposite. Like you map out the whole story and the story tells you where you're going. And then hearing that it's more like you sort of build these worlds and then you're like, how do we fill these worlds with story? Which is, I guess, which is more like how real life happens. Um, that's like, that's like fascinating to me. I would never have thought of it like that. I would say a couple things about that. First of all, one of the reasons why broadcast television, let's just be real, isn't as good uh, oftentimes as cable is because, you know, those those sort of premium cable networks, you can write the whole season before you shoot it. Mm-hmm. And so yeah. you have time, to, you have time to like envision the whole season and, and mm-hmm. then production picks up the whole season and says, these are the things that we need to build. Right. You have a chance uh, as the writer, as the showrunner to sort of be on set the whole time, uh, which is a huge luxury. And, you know, something that I very rarely get to do because we're down here in LA sort of like writing our asses off just a few fucking steps ahead of the production train. Right. You yeah. Know, yeah. Closer and closer and closer to like running us over as the <laughs> That's number one. The broadcast model is, in many cases, in many ways, I think I would say broken. I, I would love, I would much prefer to have a longer writing period. You know, if I knew, for instance, that the show was guaranteed to come back year after year, I would have figured out a way to start the writers' room much earlier. You know, it would end mm-hmm. the writing process much earlier. We would have many more scripts written by the time we start shooting. Um, that's just not been the case. Uh, you know, because we rarely know going into a, at the end of a season, whether we have another season. So, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, part of it is based on that. The other thing I was going to say is, you know, we also, it's not entirely true that we're building sets and then figuring out the story to tell on those sets. That what I said was I come in at at the beginning of the production slash writing uh, period season, whatever you want to call it. And I know where the story is going already so that you can build those sets. And then to break story, yes, we are breaking story that will, you know, we need places to put people, basically. Right, right, Right. yeah. But it does, does, there's a kind of like physical constraint on at a certain point in the season, there are, there are, the choices you can make about story are to some extent constrained by like, what's possible in terms of like it would be cool if we had this house there where something happened but we can't build the house so uh so there's a kind of like that relationship between sort of yeah pr- production possibility and how that affects story to some extent yeah. I mean, you'll you'll there are certain episodes where you know i'm thinking on now back in season four where you know the the house that uh, was Becca's mansion. You know, mm-hmm. and yeah. we knew we seen the the episode where where Murphy's cooking in the kitchen and Clark comes in and takes a shower and mm-hmm. lays down to have a nap in the beautiful bedroom. That was a that was a location we rented that house. We went there and shot. So that's yes. a, another way that we fill out our 
our sets. Right. Um, you know, we also have a terrible production habit of destroying our sets. <laughs> you know, most shows, most shows will sort of like you build the police station in season one for the pilot, and then you tell the story in the police station or the hospital for right. the show. Yeah. Like, we don't do that. We destroy, we literally, we spent a million dollars on spaceship sets in season one and brought them to the ground. Sixty <laughs> percent you know, of, of our sets for season two. And, and one of the great things that Warner brothers and, and the CW has allowed us to do is because that's now our kind of pattern budget. We, we get a lot of money uh, that I'm amazingly grateful for at the beginning of every season to build new worlds. You know, we're, mm -hmm. we're ending outward always. Unfortunately, that doesn't mean we have like an endless number of sets. You know, I think back to season and obviously we blew up Mount weather. Yeah. So that, that disappeared as a place for us to put sets. We then in season three, what damage did we do in season three? Uh, off the top of my head, I can't remember. Maybe season think Season three, like everything was pretty much intact, it feels like. But then season four, I mean, like po Polis is gone, right? Like all those Polis sets. Yeah, Arcadia must be gone. Yeah. yeah. Season three, we did damage to people. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We killed, <laughs> killed the people in season three. Uh, in season four, the death wave took out everything. Right, so right, yeah, yeah. We start, we start season five. Um, and we have the bunker. Um, Clark has found, you know, this this sort of last green space on Earth uh, that we find her in at the end of season four. And there's a village there. Mm -hmm. And so those structures are intact miraculously. The death wave leapt over the whole village. Um, and uh, so there's a, killed the people, but the radiation killed the people, but the village is there. So we have new sets that are in this village, which are pretty awesome uh, and serve us well this year. Um, but yeah, Arcadia gets wiped out. That's gone. It's literally like been this crazy Becca's lab is, is essentially gone. Theoretically it would still be there, but uh, you know, Clark isn't spending any time there. She, she sort of goes on walkabout at the beginning of the season um, and never returns. So, yeah. Um, so yeah, I mean, that's been uh that's been our crazy pattern. We destroy everything we touch. <laughs> so what you're saying is that if you had just made a procedural, your life would be so much easier. <laughs> but you decided to make it hard for yourself. Yeah. But you know, the truth is, the reason the show stays um, interesting to me creatively is because we change it every year. Yeah, like, yeah I could, for sure. For sure. Oh, yeah. I think I would do well in a procedural which was yeah. about I mean listen I know people love procedurals they do really well but I personally don't watch them and really can't understand um creatively staying in a in a formula that strictly for more than you know one season yeah. so yeah yeah by design but yes it's definitely got its challenges yeah and it's interesting too actually sort of thinking about it from like a viewer perspective and 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 thinking about like the ways that, you know, that we uh, analyze what's on the screen that the the sort of uh, network TV uh, time, like schedule that you're on that Titan schedule versus cable too. I think I imagine it would really affect like 
um, you're, what you're able to do with mise-en-scene, you know, like the amount of sort of control and precision and whatever you're able to sort of assert about like what's on the set, what precisely they look up, look like and all that kind of, and, and like sort of what details yeah. you want to put in early versus later, um, which is, you know, one of those little things, but I think that it's kind of interesting to like knowing the, the sort of, uh, uh, challenges that you're working with in production in production and how that can affect some of those decisions is interesting from a viewer standpoint. Sure. I mean, I think, you know, the truth is that we have brilliant people working on the show. Um, James Philpott, who's the production designer has been since season two is so good at creating worlds and his team is so good at filling in those worlds with believable stuff. Oh yeah. So that, mm -hmm. yeah. So that it never doesn't feel, it never feels like a set. You no, know, it, it definitely doesn't. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, and so I wouldn't say that that's necessarily a, a challenge because of the schedule. The things that are hard uh, as a result of the sort of speed of the schedule, the shortness of the schedule. And by the way, it's worse for shows that are on in the fall because, you know, we have the whole we have the luxury of not airing until this year it's not until april but usually it's you know february march and so we're able to shoot the whole thing and and before we have to worry about airing in the one season that we aired in the fall it was sort of like that was terrifying that was pure yeah. one of our best seasons i think it was season two but it was terrifying to like literally have be in production on episode four and the show was airing. Already, oh yeah, I'll bet. You know? Oh god, yeah. <laughs> so the the phenomenon when we're a mid-season show is we're done. You know, I'm sitting here waiting for the show to air, worrying about season six. You know what the story for season six is going to be before you guys have seen episode one of the previous season. It both throws me for a sort of you know it's difficult to talk about it because I know everything and it's like old news to me already. Yeah, the story. Yeah. You guys haven't seen yet, you know, so there's there's things that are that's why I'm such a spoiler, because it's sort of like <laughs> it's I, not new to you anymore. <laughs> I, forget, I forget that the audience hasn't seen, you know, the episode where blah, blah, blah. You right, know? right, right, right. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean, I think the thing that's cr tricky about the production schedule is just that um, we don't have time to. You know, be, despite what I just said about having that extra time because we're mid-season, our production schedule is the same. It's it's not like we can shoot for more weeks. You know, yeah. our, we, from you know August, beginning of August till the till sometime in January, uh, regardless of you know, and and it doesn't change. It's not changeable, <laughs> and so that's the thing that's so maddening. It's just not having always pushing, always wanting the show to be bigger and, and more scopey and more epic. And I'm, you know, it's a tricky show for people to make because I'm pushing so hard all the time. Yeah. And, and, you know, obviously it's in the elements in Vancouver. So people are in the rain and, and in the, in, in the snow and the freezing weather as, as the weather turns, as we get later in the year. And yet, and this is something I'm really proud of, you know, we retain like 95 percent of our people they come back year after year because they're proud of the show too you know yeah it's not just punching a clock and these are people who could get jobs in a second you know the few times where we have either let people go or they just decided that life is too short to 
to to you know deal with my bullshit or with the <laughs> with um, uh, the elements. You know, they get they, they get their next job as they're literally walking out the door yeah. because there's much work in Vancouver right now. Yeah. Um, yeah, and and you know our people are are that good that. And, and it really is like a family. Um, and so, you know, that's something that I think is pretty cool. Yeah. We cool. some five different subjects there. Sorry. What was the question? <laughs> no, no, that's okay. <laughs> we, well, we started out with uh, talking about how early in the writing process you knew people would end up in space. But I think we actually wound up covering, we had a couple of questions. One from uh, Jess about how the first day of a new season goes. Uh, for your team in the writer's room, which I think you talked about a little bit, although if you want to sort of elaborate on that more. Um, sure. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the first day is a little bit like the first day back at school where, you know, you're reconnecting with people that you maybe haven't talked to in a few months. Uh, literally, it's almost the same amount of time away. It's maybe a little bit more than a summer vacation used to be back in school. Um, but, you know, I keep in touch with most of the people that I don't see. Um during the hiatus. Sometimes there's a new person who we're hiring a new writer who comes on board or two. And, and so it's, you know, getting them acclimated and people picking out their offices or moving their stuff back into their <laughs> offices. It's, it's just like any other, <laughs> like any other workplace, you know, yeah. I take them out to lunch or we buy donuts and coffee in the morning or do something. And then, um, we get together in the writer's room it's casual as hell though. There's not like, it's not like we start on day one and I'm cracking the whip and saying, you know, we're already behind, even though the truth, <laughs> that's how I'm feeling, but <laughs> I don't share that generally. Um, and I'll give people sort of the broad strokes of, of the big idea. Those who don't know already, cause you know, obviously we like to tee up what the next adventure is at the end of the previous one. Right. So, right. And every season's been like that. The White Room in season one, mm -hmm. Allie, uh, Becca's Mansion in season two, where, where we met Allie. Um, in season three, finding out that the death wave was coming. And then, of course, the six-year time jump and, and meeting Maddie and seeing the spaceship in season four. So we're always teeing up what the next adventure is at the end of the season. So most people know, you know, what the big story is, the Uber story. And then, you know, I spend time a lot of time in the hiatus sort of daydreaming and thinking about what it's going to be. So I can lay out some markers, some sort of tent poles um, on day one uh, for the staff so that we can start to fill in the blanks. You know, yeah. I feel like it's really important to know the ending before we begin a season, just because, you know, we don't, you can't get where you're going if you don't know where you're going. Right. You know? Right. Yeah. Yeah. So, Do you tend to, so you, you start with like an ending in mind. Do you have like, do you tend to have like a sort of like mid-season, like here's a big thing that's going to happen at mid-season or a couple of other sort of big? Yeah. 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 I mean, season, to go season by season just quickly in season one, obviously, you know, the, the truth is it was a pilot. I had no idea it was going to get picked up to series. When it got picked up to series, I had never thought about, you know, right, running a show before, like really. <laughs> yeah, this was my sort of like rookie I was a, on day one of the writer's room for the hundred in season one, it was literally, I had the same amount of experience as a staff writer on their first day in that writer's room. Wow. So I'd never, I had never set foot in a writer's room before. Maybe that explains something, you guys. Uh, <laughs> no, I'm satisfying uh, some people. But anyway, uh, <laughs> it, it is 
that uh, I, you know, in sort of knowing that this was going to be a baptism by fire, I had showrunners that uh, were there to sort of help me figure out how to do this in season one. I was not the t- the titular showrunner. Mm-hmm. Um, and I came in knowing a couple of things. I knew that we were going to do the culling. I knew that um, there was going to be this sort of uh, horribly tragic moment where the arc was dying and they were going to have to reduce the population. But if they knew the ground was survivable, they wouldn't have to do that. And the kids on the ground were going to be desperate to try to get them, you know, word that they could survive down there knowing that there was going to be a culling um, and that they were going to be too late. So that was something that I knew on day one that we were writing towards. And I also knew that we were going to end up in Mount Weather at the end of the season. Okay. Uh, but I didn't know, for instance, that we were going to bring the Ark to the ground. That was a idea that came up in the room. I think it was I, I, I think it was Bruce Miller who has gone on to greatness with. Uh, yeah. Um, I think it was Bruce's idea to bring the Ark down. I can't remember exactly, but I want to give him credit for it. Um, and and you know, I, my initial reaction to it was like, "Are you fucking out of your mind?" Like, <laughs> 750,000 or a million dollars worth of sets and we're going to just like crash them to the ground. <laughs> and he was like, yeah, sure. Why not? <laughs> uh, my next thought was, That's awesome. Yeah. Let's definitely do that. So, you know, my job, even then creatively, it was sort of, you know, my show to, to, to run, um, technically in the it sort of story wise, you know? Yeah. And so my job is as showrunner, one of my many, I think jobs is to hear a good idea, know a good idea when I hear it, you know, mm-hmm. and, and always be able to sort of like be creatively sort of supple enough to, to take that idea. And, and, you know, even if it's beating one of my ideas, you know, letting that happen, taking my ego out of it and, and, you know, letting the best idea win. Yeah. So, and so, yeah, so season two, I knew was going to be all about Mount Weather and that we were going to get out of Mount Weather at the end and that Clark was going to pull the lever. You know, things like that kind of evolved as as the, the, the sort of specifics of pulling the lever evolved as we were breaking uh, the show. But I knew from the beginning that the whole season was going to be sort of built around getting them out of Mount Weather. So much so that as we were doing it, I remember feeling distinctly around episode eight or nine of that season breaking story like we were, I felt like we were spinning our wheels, like putting off the inevitable and we still had six episodes to figure out what to do. What ends up happening is, you know, you do that. You come up with great character stories or uh, sort of subplots or side missions or whatever the case may be, complications yeah. getting into Mount Weather. Mm-hmm. Um, and we were, of course, also fleshing out the grounder universe during season two quite a bit right. more. Mm-hmm. And that was you know, a big part of season two. Um Season three, well, season three was a little bit sort of bipolar in the sense of there. I had these two really great stories that I felt uh, weren't really connected. The sort of grounder, polis, Lexa world and the 12 clans and, and, and the sort of uh, internecine, uh, the war between the clans. And then, of course... The AI story, which was the alpha story for that season, and there was no sort of grand unifying thing. And then, you know, we got news that Alicia was going uh, to be 
going to the fear to fear the walking dead which was kind of a shock but something that forced us to sort of think about okay you know if we're going to write her off the show what's the best way to do that and that's where the idea of the ai and the flame and you know to me the single most important sort of reveal um ever in our show was the idea that the flame came from alley one and mm-hmm. uh and and that Becca was responsible for all of it. The grounder culture, on some level, really does spring from uh, from the sky and from yeah. Becca. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know that sort of that moment to me uh, was the aha that linked the first half and the second half of the season. Right. Yeah, uh, right. yeah. And, and it does kind and, of open up like a more of a mystery to the grounder backstory that like the way the sort of story of how they wound up where they are when, you know, the sky people arrive, that's the kind of moment where you realize like, Oh crap, there's like way more to this than, than we knew, you know? Yeah. I mean, it was, it was, it was a sort of a big aha to realize, to come up with a sort of idea that it was all connected. Yeah. And that, you know, in, in, in season three sort of specifically that, that Allie was searching for Allie too. Yeah, and that yeah. was there all along, you know, that, that was just something uh, that I thought was really cool. And that helped me sort of say to myself creatively anyway, that we had a, we had a season at that point because it was connected. It felt of a piece. And so, right. and so, you know, and so that was that season. I knew we were going to go to the city of light. I knew that, um, that that was the end point. Um, I knew obviously that Lex was not was going to die in the middle of the season. And so these were like, you know, you asked me what the tent poles are that that come uh, on day one. Those were the beats that we under, that we knew that year. Right. Um, season four. Again, like I said, I knew the death wave was coming and it was sort of like, you know, from the beginning of the season to the end um, was a ticking clock, which I thought was a cool sort of. Knew I knew that as the season progressed, it was going to feel more and more breathless and more and more uh, extreme and intense because it was getting closer. Mm-hmm. You know, the clock was literally ticking, and right up until the end of the finale. So, um, you know, having that as a as a destination, it became about what do you do if you know that you have a terminal diagnosis? You know, it's right, sort of right. Were you going to live life to its fullest? Ironically, that's what Jasper did. Um, And then sort of like let that be the end. Or were you going to be like Clark and sort of fight until, you know, your last dying breath? And that's obviously what Clark and many others chose to do. So um, that's what that season was about. Season five. Well, obviously, I can't talk. later we'll have you back at the end of this season and then we'll say like okay now tell us what were the tent poles for season five okay good it's a date <laughs> excellent <laughs> uh so our next question is from lisa um at lisa powell 92 on twitter um and she wants to know which new version of an existing character are you most looking forward to the fans meeting post time jump and i will say let's say clark doesn't count since we already met clark post time jump so like besides clark well, I will say because I am, it's impossible for me to answer the question as it's as it's asked by just answering the question. I have to say, <laughs> I have to say, um, I, I'm really anxious and excited for for the audience to meet or re-meet, I should say, all of these characters because six years is a long 
MF time. It you is, know? yeah. We basically have put them, they've been apart for something like 10, almost 10 times longer than they were ever on the ground. Right, yeah. So, you know, and think about how much a character like Murphy or Octavia has changed from episode one to, you know, the end of season four and realize that that's eight months. And now imagine that they're not together for six years. So yeah. a lot, one of the challenges of a time jump like that is, you know, we want to sort of shake up, uh, shake up the deck. Is that the term? I don't know if that's the term. Shuffle we wanted, the shuffle the deck. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> shuffle the deck. Thank you. We wanted to shuffle the deck so that these people felt different, but of course they also need to feel the same. So, um, you know, that's a that's one of the challenges of of doing a time jump like this. Um, and so, you know, we do. Yes, we've seen Clark, but we don't really know what she's like yet. And and you know, she does have her priorities totally. Um, shuffled she's now mother in in you know for all intents and purposes not biologically but loves that child like her own child and so you know what does uh someone who you know has made all the hard choices that clark has made for her people um do when it's now a person right yeah. mm -hmm. uh, that'll be really i think fascinating what happens when when what's right for her person isn't the same thing that's maybe right for people writ large, you know, right. yeah. what, what is the, what is one Ada going to do when it, when that push comes to shove, which it will, mm -hmm. um, Bellamy, you know, Bellamy has spent those six years heeding Clark's, uh, advice slash, you know, wish for him that he figure out how to integrate the heart and the head, um, and has become much more of a sort of fully realized holistic, hero in many ways, uh, leader for, for his new family, space crew, as we call them. Uh, I think actually somebody might actually use the term space crew in the show at the oh. end of the season. Oh, that's nice. <laughs> I think Echo says, space crew, you're with me. That's a line. Oh. Of <laughs> episode, I don't know. I'm not going to tell you what episode. But anyway, um, and then, you know, Octavia. Octavia... If I were to answer the question with just one person, it would probably be Octavia. I think yeah. she's the character that I am uh, both the most anxious and interested um, to see what the audience reaction is because she's mm. uh, she's the life underground has not been easy. Uh, and, you know, to keep her people together, things have had to happen. I'm not going to say much <laughs> more about it other than that. Sure, sure. <laughs> for me it's about we've seen our our good care our good guys do horrible things and you know the show lives in the gray areas for us mm -hmm. and you know as long as we understand a character's choices and i think most often we've been successful at when our good guys do bad things um sort of understanding why they were doing it yeah and, uh, and same for the bad guys most of the time too i would say you know like absolutely Totally. Yeah. I mean, that's important to me also to make sure that every year, uh, whoever the guest cast is, these new characters, these new challenges, antagonists, whatever you want to call them, uh, uh, that we get their perspective also. And I think for the most part, we've been really successful at that. I, yeah. I loved, I loved Dante. I thought Ray Barry's uh, character was so fascinating in season two. Yeah, uh, it was great. Such a great performance by my my friend Ray. 
Um, you know, and this season we have these three new main uh, guest stars and they're all amazing in different ways. And I think ultimately for them, except for maybe McCreary, McCreary, <laughs> McCreary could be the first straight up. I put McCreary in the cage Wallace category. Ah, that's what William told me when we, when we had drinks with you guys, I was sitting next to him and he was like, you know, the show does such a great job of like, you know, like quote unquote villains who are really like, you know, you could imagine another version of this story from somebody like Pike's perspective or Dante's perspective where it's flipped where they would be the hero of their own narrative. You know, like where, where it is that ambiguous. And, and William was like, he's like, I am not that. He's like, I'm just like pure villain the whole way. And I was like, yes. <laughs> yeah, it's true. He's right. But you know, <laughs> We did definitely set up this new story about a group of prisoners, you know, hardened maximum security prisoners that were so awful that they were sent away off the planet to mine an asteroid, right? So mm-hmm. it needed to be sort of true to uh, to that idea. They're not a bunch of like Boy Scouts that got sent on that on that uh, right, mission, you know. And so and and McCreary is as bad as they come. Dioza is a different uh, animal altogether. She's definitely much more of the more nuanced uh, villain, uh, definitely more of a Dante than a, than a cage, I would say. Um, so yeah. But it I is can't fun wait. sometimes. Like I, I think it was, it's fun sometimes to have that one character that you can just purely cheer for them. Like, like when Cage yeah. died, we could all just like cheer without <laughs> any sort of like any reservations whatsoever. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Occasionally, it's fun to have that guy. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, you know, and and it's funny in the in both cases. I'm trying to remember. I think I'm I'm pretty sure that uh, for for one reason or another, you know, sometimes network and and or studio ask for things because you know they they're either not in love with the performance or they feel like they need uh, to see something that they're not seeing. And I think in the case of, I can't remember exactly, but I feel like I was in love with Dante and, you know, I cast Ray, like I said before, is, is a friend of mine. Our sons played basketball together back in that day, in that day. And, and, you know, Ray and I were talking on the sidelines of all these basketball games. And, and I was a huge fan of his uh, from, from his work, you know, prior. And I was like, I'm writing you a character. There's no way I'm not working with you. And so I wrote Dante for him. He's a painter. Dante became a painter. Um, But anyway, uh, he's like a 70 year old, 70 year old man. And I think he may have been like, I don't know. I don't want to say this, but maybe the oldest actor ever on the CW. (laughs) (laughs) So so they really wanted us to have they wanted a, they wanted us to have a, a, a sort of younger, more demographically um, correct, I guess is the word. I don't know how. <laughs> uh, that's where Cage came from. So you know, and and so that became uh, an opportunity to both cast Johnny, who was amazing, and and he's great. He did such yeah. a great job. Yeah, he kind of ruined Empire Records for me, but he's yeah. so good. <laughs> <laughs> it's true. You can't watch Empire Records now without going. Oh, I know. Cage Wallace. I know. Oh, that's devastating. Yeah, he was awesome. The point I'm making is things, you know, again, this is about being a showrunner. Like, you're always making choices and decisions and pivoting and having to, like, change. You find out an actor 
is leaving, you know, you find out an actor is sick. You find out an actor is an asshole, you know, (laughs) you have to, you have to be able to creatively go with that flow and make sure that the story is still whole and uh, works, you know? Yeah, for sure. And because of the nonstop madness, as I said before, to get back to the theme of like the train running up on your ass, it's like you production train, you know, you got to do it fast. You got to make those choices fast. And sometimes they work. And usually I think in our case they have, uh, and sometimes they don't. I was going to say in the case of, of the hundred, I think almost nine times out of 10 or more, you know, it's worked out great. Like the, the amount of amazing talent you guys have found, especially, you know, among actors who weren't well known before you guys found them is just like incredible. (laughs) <laughs> yeah the cast is great for sure we have great casting people mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. you know i like to take a little bit of credit for pulling triggers and on the right people but you know for, for a large part it's usually undeniable you know yeah like someone Lindsay borgen comes in and i just tweeted about this the other day but for audition it was just you know there was no reason to continue it was just obvious right you know yeah yeah um that doesn't happen all the time and, you know, sometimes it's the opposite. You know, I have to say there have been times, I'm not going to lie, where like someone doesn't pop and you have to sort of like alter your plans in the other direction. You know, yeah. like you had a plan to, to, to do something, but the actor is just not carrying that ball. And so you've got to sort of, you know, you, you whether they're difficult on set or whether they're, a, you know, an asshole or whatever the case may be, you know, to other people, um, you have to you have to make allowances creatively for that sometimes unfortunately too yeah uh, but you know for the most part it's been in our case in our in, in for the hundred you know recognizing uh talent who have who come in for an episode and maybe are supposed to have like a small part and saying holy shit that person's really good let's let's keep them around you know i have to say richard Harmon mm-hmm. uh in the pilot was John number one. In fact, I don't think we gave him the last name Murphy until somewhere halfway through season one. He didn't even have a last name. He was John number one. John number two was Mbege, who later got a last name because Murphy did. Um, But Richard was so good every single time he was on camera, every single time he had a line. And and he was kind of a douche, obviously, in season one. He was kind of a homicidal... (laughs) I was going to say, like, douche might be a little bit gentle. (laughs) A murderous psychopath. Right. Every time he did something, there was this sort of pathos in his eyes. Mm -hmm. You know, there was Mm -hmm. something happening in those eyes of his. And in fact, at the end of season one, I felt like one of the things I uh, regretted is not the right word. But one of the sort of like, I left some money on the table, if you know what I mean. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like I wanted, I knew that there was so much more he could do. And so I set a goal for season two of dimensionalizing Murphy so that the audience saw him uh, differently. And, you know, all it took was one episode, literally, you know, the the first episode where he's in those scenes with Raven in the, in the dropship talking about how, you know, his father uh, who stole medicine for his son and got floated for it. And all of, all of those scenes, those three scenes, I think, literally, like, the audience fell in love with him. Mm-hmm. And it's been best ever since. Some people will now say that they loved him from the beginning. Uh, 
say that that says more about them than they want it to. (laughs) (laughs) For me, honestly, it was, I mean, that was, those scenes were incredible. And, and uh, Richard and Lindsay just like, they have incredible chemistry and like, they are both phenomenal actors and they were amazing. But honestly, like I came around on Murphy. It was like Murphy and Jaha, like that dynamic was just so much fun, you know? Yeah. 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 That was a good pairing. You know, when, when I knew that I I just, there was something that I, I kind of knew like Isaiah is such a riveting actor Uh and, and, and pushes, you know, like he's, he's like, you know, challenges you. And I knew Richard would, would excel in that, in that pairing. Like he would not Mm -hmm. back down. He would Mm -hmm. go toe to toe with, with the heavyweight champ, you know? Um, And so that, that pairing became electric and yeah, really, really served uh, them and us well on their little mission uh, to uh, the Island. Yeah. Because that's actually a perfect transition to our, go ahead, Aaron. Oh no, 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 go ahead. I was actually going to do the Uh, same thing. Okay. (laughs) No, you go. It's your question. You take it. Okay. So this question is from someone named Aaron, who is not me. Um, And perfect transition because this question is about Murphy. Are there any hints of what we can expect for Murphy's character development, uh, like his relationship with others after six years in space with only six other people? He's already grown so much in four seasons. His and so many others' development is the one thing that this Aaron is most amped up about in season five and can't wait to see. So any little, like, crumbs you can give us about Murphy or reflections about Murphy, either way. Yeah, I mean, I think... This obviously it does dovetail from what we were just talking about. I mean, he has um, he has come into his own. Uh, certainly, he's a survivor. He's the cockroach, as he often refers to himself. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, um, and you know, I think in season four, he definitely sort of expanded his circle of of uh, protection to include first Amori and then um, space crew when they sort of are forced together at the end. Um, and, you know, you want Murphy. I think what we've realized about him is that you want him on your side. You know, you yeah. want to yeah. want to be on John Murphy's side because that's the side that's going to make it. Um, <laughs> he does really, really well when the shit is hitting the fan. What we learn in season five, I almost said season six, what we learn in season five um and through the time jump is that when the shit isn't hitting the fan, he doesn't do so well. Ah, he's, not, mm. he's not so good. So good during peacetime. Um, <laughs> so those six years for him up on the arc are, uh, are, are hell. Um, and so, and, and, you know, his relationships are a mess and, and as a result of it. And, um, you know, the good part about season five is, one of the good parts is that we jump the six year time jump. So when we come back, the shit is about to hit the fan again. Right. So the shit hits Mm -hmm. the very quickly and Murphy rises to the occasion yet again. But, you know, can bygones be bygones is the question, you know, can we, can we ever trust, you know, in life, obviously like we don't want to live in a constant state of war. We don't want to live in a constant state of the shit hitting the fan. We want to live in peace. We want the calm, quiet, long stretches of like life, you know, where we're not under constant uh, threat of death. That's what Murphy does well. Right. He needs to learn how to do well. He needs to learn how to, like, 
kick back on the beach and drink a yeah. Rita and you know <laughs> he's not built for peacetime yeah. yeah I wondered about that like I I wondered just because you know there's so many you know these characters since they landed on the ground or for some of them you know even longer just because it's been like go 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 the whole time like we've never encountered a version of, of any of these people in peacetime like in what does it look like when you don't have that sort of adrenaline rush of all these things happening and so I've been especially with with space crew where it seems like it's likely to be like again relatively more chill than the bunker I think it's really fascinating to imagine like who are all of these people with like six years of not having a, a conflict to be the sort of main focus of what they're doing with their lives right well you get a <clears throat> bit of that because like I said you know Peacetime doesn't last very long. Yeah, but, it uh, never does. <laughs> no, I mean that's not what the show is. You know, the show is the show is a post-apocalyptic nightmare. It's a tragedy. It's a, a, you know an action adventure uh, that that is uh, always racing. So you know that's what people have come to expect. I think that's what they should expect, and that's one of the reasons why we jumped six years, frankly, because yeah. you know seeing them. As much as it would be, I think, nice for some fans of the show to see our characters in their, like, you know, ho-hum, what are we going to do today? Like, you know, what do you want to do today? Let's <laughs> go for a walk around the spaceship. And, you know, <laughs> it would be great for some of the audience. It would be tragically boring television. So, yes, there could be, like, some fun, you know, romantic storytelling, obviously. Uh, and we get some of that, too. But for the most part, you know, we're skipping what I consider to be the boring parts and getting right to the shit. <laughs> Excellent. I've... Sorry. Sorry. <laughs> How dare you? <laughs> How dare you write what's interesting to you, honestly? Come on. <laughs> I'm told, I'm told there's a thing called fan fiction that's out there. I'm sure some people write, like, a lot of, like, what happened up on that ring for six years? Mm -hmm. oh, and, and I think that's that's definitely like that is the function that fan fiction can serve. Like people get to, you know, people can sort of fill in their own blanks that can kind of live in their own imagination world that's maybe separate from the story, but it's sort of thinking about, you know, like what was life like on the ark when the adults were young or what's happening in the bunker over those six years or whatever. And so people just kind of, filling with their own thoughts, but it'll be interesting to sort of see, you know, how much of people, ha how people have been imagining that actually played out, you know, sure. if that yeah. matches when we actually come back and see like what it actually was like. Sure. I mean, we give, obviously we give some backstory and we give some, we fill in some of those blanks. We, we mm -hmm. do some flashback stories now and then obviously. So mm -hmm. some of it is canon, but yeah, I mean, a lot of it is fill in the blanks. A lot of it, you know, the actors have to do some of that work themselves so that they can. Sort yeah. Of some truth out of out of the present tense that they're living in uh, dramatically. Uh, so a lot of that is discussion that I have with each of them, and a lot of that is probably just work that they've done themselves to to bring them to that moment. Um, but yeah, I mean, you know, there's still one of the things I love so much about the show, uh, and it's you know one of the, I'm working on this prequel. I think it's going to be a prequel. I can't. I'm still like on the fence between whether it's a prequel or its own thing. Because it's a story that I've been wanting to tell for a long time of uh, that sort of dovetails or kisses nicely into the hundred uh, mythology. But anyway, 
sorry I'm being a little bit uh, vague about that. But, um, yeah, you know, cool. I, I love how sort of how dense and rich the universe is. You know, that's yes. one of the things that, you know, we could pick uh, any time along the timeline and tell a cool story, have a mm -hmm. set a season, like you said, on, on the arc back when, you know, Abby was young or um, that's not what my prequel idea is. <laughs> well, to me. we find out, by the way. <laughs> Find out this season about some, you know, some of the arc history and some of the horrible things that happened while they were trying to stay alive up there that Ooh. kind of themselves in the bunker. Um, oh, I was hoping, I was hoping we were going to get cool, like bunker versus arc, sort of like totalitarian society surviving on scant resources, sort of. I love those parallels, so I'm excited about that. Absolutely, it's a very similar situation for sure. Um, and so, because the bunker is essentially an underground spaceship. Yeah. Right. Which makes yeah. it especially fascinating for Octavia, where, you know, she's kind of like yes. functionally back on the arc and also back underneath the ground. Like, it psychologically has all these, like, very potentially troubling yes. layers for her in particular that I'm really interested in. Yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. Uh, totally. One of the most, I think, surprising uh, dynamics early in the season is the. Jaha Octavia. I was just going to ask about that. I'm so interested in how, like, how the hell that's all going to play out. <laughs> yeah, it's pretty insane. It's surprising, too, I think. Um, but yeah, I'm excited for, for people to see that, too, for sure. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, I think, you know, I think one of the things that I like the most, I, I have no idea, by the way, where this conversation started. But, that's uh, okay. But I, <laughs> that's fine. But I, but I, I, what I, what I like the most and it keeps me inspired is sort of how how the history of this show and the world yeah. and where we've come from and where they've come from and uh i would love to tell the story of the first grounders and and how how becca you know was taken in by the second dawn cult and yes. what happened yes. there and you know all of that 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 does sort of play into where the prequel lives a little bit oh and, cool. excellent claire and i just like we, we, we are, love Bill Cadigan. Yes. And we're like, like the Becca, like the question of how Becca and Bill Cadigan came yeah. together and sort of dubbed it like, we are obsessed. So if you chose to do that, you We have... think about this all the time. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> We'd be very excited. Let's just say Cadigan didn't like Becca very much. I, that's what we know, thought. That's what we thought. Yes. yes. Like they're kind I of, they have, they have sort of, they are, they seem to have very kind of uh, conflicting ideologies let's just say in some fascinating yeah. ways and, well, and he becca's existence and the existence of nightblood which she obviously was as a result of the right she was giving herself uh destroys cadigan's whole theology right yeah and, yeah yeah and so he wouldn't he would not like her uh, okay, so uh, next question comes from uh, our friend Samantha, who's at Sam Casey's on Twitter. Uh, she reviews the show for Telltale TV, and she's one of our friends from our uh, panel crew for Unity Days. And her question is, you've talked a little bit about how being with Maddie and taking her in as a daughter has made Clark more understanding of Abby and everything she's done for her. Abby and Clark's relationship is one of my favorite on the show, and I'm super excited to see Clark as a mom herself. Can you talk more about the relationship between the Griffin women in the past over the time jump and anything you can tease about their reunion or their relationship going forward in season five? 
Yes. Great question. You know, for me, obviously, everything began with with the Griffin woman. Mm-hmm. Relationship between Clark and Abby is the first thing we see in the first scene of the pilot. Um, when Clark wakes up in her cell or or the cell door opens and eventually, you know, Abby shows up and, and says you're going to earn. If not the most important relationship in the show, it's definitely one of them. Um, obviously incredibly strained for the first couple seasons. You know, I think Clark realizing that Abby played a big role in the death of her father, um, you know, is something that damaged that relationship. I feel like it takes a couple seasons. I can't really remember right now, like where the sort of, uh, you know, does, does Clark, you guys tell me, this is where you're going to probably know more about my own show than I do. I'm but, on it. <laughs> where is the moment where Clark kind of accepts what Abby did and understands why she did it? Um, it, I mean, it feels to me like something that kind of happens a little bit incrementally, um, but I don't know that they necessarily ever kind of talk it out. It sort of feels a little bit like when they're reunited at Mount Weather in the season two finale and they have that kind of like, you know, reunion hug moment like that, that they're sort of maybe a lot like kind of putting the rest of it away. But I don't know that they actually ever sort of like I think I think they don't really talk that out super explicitly that i can think of like, i mean i think they like this i would agree that yeah like, the, i would agree that the, the maybe there are no good guys moment at the end of season two yeah. is kind of like a turning point but i think honestly for me i think the moment where it was like most clearly legible you know on screen that um that clark completely understood uh what abby like you know, the decision that Abby had made on the arc and why she made it was in season four in, uh, was it episode 11? The one after Die All, Die Merrily, where she, where Clark had pulled the switcheroo that, like, she had, she grabbed the bunker. And... Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And she and, she and Abby and Jaha have that conversation, mm-hmm. um, where, you know, they're all kind of like... I, I feel like- we're back yeah. on the arc, making the same decisions we made before kind of thing. Yeah. Sure. I think that the parallels definitely season four were rich with them. I feel like yeah. the, the decision Clark makes early in the season uh, to keep the truth from the people. Yeah. Too, yeah. Uh, to keep the truth from the sort of, you know, gen pop of, of uh, Arcadia is really analogous to the decision that, that Abby made to keep the truth from... Uh, the gen pop of the arc that the arc was dying mm-hmm. and really put her on the opposite side of what her father was uh, advocating back on uh, on the arc, which was to, that everybody needed to know. Right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that's so interesting to me just because I, I, I loved those season one parallels, the, the way that, you know, Raven and Clark and Bellamy sort of mirrored um, Kane and Abby and ja- or Abby and Jaha and Jake um, on the on the arc in that kind of story. And I what I liked about it was I feel like that sort of um, that really challenges I think Clark's perception of herself as her father's daughter. You know, like the sort of her conviction that I feel like she probably always had that if she was in that situation, she would do what her father did because when it was hypothetical, it was so clear to her that she felt like Jake was the one that was morally 
right. And so I loved watching her be put in that position and having to sort of rethink like maybe the choice that her mom made or maybe the way the choices that Jaha made are worth like considering in a way that she hadn't before. So I thought that was like the way those lines were drawn and the way, you know, that that Jake story was like so present for her, I thought was so cool. Yeah, I mean, I think, uh, by the way, um, Chris is another actor who uh, we hired for Searchers who I loved working with so much and I would love to find uh, more things for him to do. I see him tweeting occasionally. Uh, he really wants to do Jake flashbacks. We tweet about this constantly. I'm just saying. Uh, <laughs> no, was- no. <laughs> By the way, he was in, there was like a Netflix movie called Bright, which I watched. Uh, and he he's suddenly, I, I couldn't recognize him physically, but his voice was so obviously Chris Brown. I was like, holy shit. But anyway, <laughs> um, I love seeing, I love seeing, you know, the cast go on to do great things. Not that that was necessarily great, but you get the point. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but anyway, so yeah, I mean, I think that's the moment for me that Clark, when she is in that position as the leader uh, forced to make a choice that is morally complicated in order to do what's best for her people, which, you know, is only, is only something you can relate to when you're in that position and have to do it. Yeah. So probably the moment, I don't know that we ever articulated it overtly, but, but where Clark began to understand and, and on some level to, to get back to just the Abby um, Clark of it all, you know, Abby's, in the position as a parent of sort of, you know, realizing that her child who she's sort of at the beginning of the show fiercely trying to keep safe, you know, um, is the one, you know, like what it must be like to have a child who is beyond uh, special. And, And we see those, we see that sort of trajectory for Clark and Abby where at some point, you know, Clark says to Abby, you may be the chancellor, but I'm in charge. You know, it's like she's she's on the rise. Um, and then at some point, Abby kind of has to let go and let her awesome child be awesome and and, you know, sit back and and, and take a back. That's kind of the, the role of a parent, you know, universally. You know, we have to uh, I have children of my own and I have one who's 18 going on 19 you know gonna go away to college in the fall and I have a a little one too so you know but I'm with my son in the process of having to let go and having to realize that you know he's now got to go live his story and I can't really impose my will on him I never could but (laughs) (laughs) realizing that I have to stop fighting against it is is a thing you know and abby's had to do that and i think interestingly into season five you know clark having a having a child having a sort of you know parental bond with maddie goes through the same thing mm-hmm. um, you know and, and and definitely there's a bit of sort of karma also you know my dad used to say to me mm-hmm. wait till you have kids of your own <laughs> you're gonna <laughs> you are you know in so many words um and lo and behold you know that's <laughs> a bitch you know i mean you i definitely sort of see uh so many things that happened when i was growing up what i things that i put my parents through in a different way now that i have been put through the same thing <laughs> 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 yeah. and so 
so and so it is with Clark. So she'll definitely uh, come to understand her mother much more from being a mother herself. You know, Abby doesn't know she's a grandma. She has no idea that Maddie's out there. And I don't know that Paige uh, is yet ready to play grandmother roles. She certainly <laughs> But, uh, you know, it's, it's going to be an interesting, it's certainly one of my favorite parts of the season. Yeah. Oh, cool. Yeah. And it must be hard for Abby, you know, uh, like one of the challenges for Abby, and I can imagine over the time jump, is the separation from Clark and not knowing if she's alive or dead. You know, like, especially going back to season one when, like, the driving, the thing driving Abby all through season one was you know, having to cling to that fierce belief that Clark is alive down there, you know, against all odds and against all evidence and like, and fighting to get down to her and then, you know, being trapped underground without any contact and not knowing. I imagine that must be a huge weight on Abby. Oh yeah. Totally crushing. I mean, yeah. to say that I Paige Turco's performance this season, wait till you guys see what she's done. It's, bananas it's so good like i i love her <laughs> i knew she was good she's been good since the beginning but like what we've done with her character this season and i, I i'm so happy that nobody has any idea of what her <laughs> you know i don't want to spoil it at all uh at some point when we begin to, to see episodes and that story comes out i'll i'll be happy to talk about it it's really a it's an important story in terms of like something that's happening uh, in our society today in a big way Ooh, um it's also it's also just like a beyond good performance i really really would love it to just get recognized um in a wider way i doubt it will um because of you know genre how, shows sort yeah. of dis dismissed as being like intellectually lesser which is really shitty <laughs> it deserves it and yeah. i think people will uh, it'll get recognized for as good a performance as it is uh, oh i'm so happy it's really been mind blowing to me um, all season. But yes, you're right. I mean, um, being trapped in the bunker, which they are, is crushingly difficult, uh, I, both for Clark and for Abby. I mean, her mom is down there and she doesn't know whether she's alive or not. Yeah. We, we, from the end of season four, it's been six years. So she should have been safe to come up for a year and they haven't. So yeah, yeah. No, they don't, she has no idea if they're all dead down there. Right. And that's really, yeah. that, that's difficult, obviously, to say the least for Clark too. So yeah, for sure. Uh, you know, reunion. Oh, I feel like uh, that one. Yeah, that's a powerful reunion for sure. Excellent. Oh, I'm so excited. Excite, yes. Yeah. <laughs> um. Yeah. Okay. Uh. So. The next question I want to ask actually kind of goes along with um, with this, uh, just in terms of like, so we know that like it's a really, really tough time in the bunker. Um, we know that it's, it's hard for everyone wherever they are. Um, and we talked a little bit before about the kind of like, you know, hashtag hugs and death. Um, so this question is from Rachel uh, at Velvet Tread. Um, do you still consider hope to be a major theme in the series? And can we expect uh, brightness amid the post-apocalyptic nightmare in season five? Oh, there's hope in the hundred. I don't know. No, <laughs> I, I don't know. Honestly, the truth is here's, here's the truth. I, I don't think hope is a theme in the show. I do think it's important to have hope. And I do think it's important for there to be, uh, 
lightness within the dark story that we're telling. And I think sometimes it's gotten too dark, perhaps. Yeah. Uh, sometimes it has, maybe. It's been like, you know, relentless. Um, I feel like uh, season five, you know, I think season four found an interesting balance. You know, there was, ironically, Jasper's story provided quite a lot of light. Um, but the, the, the irony of realizing that death is coming for everybody um ironically as i said somehow brought a lightness to certain storylines that hadn't been there in season three mm, yeah. uh, i feel like i feel like in season five we find that line again for sure mm-hmm. um you know there's there it's not a, an easy journey in season five it's you know there's one survivable place left on the planet and there's two armies that want it and so you know I, I think historically, uh, when that is the dynamic, people don't just link arms and sing Kumbaya and, you know, live happily ever after, unfortunately. So it's a difficult, uh, dramatic season. And the show is a tragedy, as I say all the time, you know. Yeah. So, um, you know, we, we, we traffic in, um, in heartbreak. Like, that's what the, the, the show is trying to... M- you know, move you to tears most of the time, Mm -hmm. you know, Mm -hmm. I do think we need to, I do think we need to find laughter too. Maybe, you know, sometimes, as I said before, more than we actually have. Um, But at the end of the day, it's a post-apocalyptic nightmare. And anybody who's coming to it needs to know that like nobody (laughs) is safe. When I say nobody is safe, I mean it. I, I'm here to say, like, on the season three poster, it says no one is safe, you know? Yeah. So, um, and no one is. So, period, end of story. There will be hope. There will be hope. Everybody has hope. You have to have hope. There has to be something to fight for. You know, we're fighting for the people we love and, and you know, to stay alive. It's funny, you know, the other night, I, I tweeted about this the other day, stupidly probably, but... Uh, there was a there was like a SWAT team and a bomb squad and all these cops were in my neighborhood looking for some guy who like attacked someone on on the street near my house and robbed a bank or something or a jewelry store. And he was on the loose, literally on the two block radius of where I live. Oh, my all God. Knocked off. There were helicopters in the sky. You know, cops came door to door looking and saying to us to like not leave the house. <laughs> and I sat up with a baseball bat like like I was going to stay up until it was done to make sure that nothing was going to happen to the people who I love, you know? Yeah. And so, you know, I, what was I going to do? If a guy came in with a gun, I'd be like, dead. <laughs> <laughs> but that like instinct kicks in. Yeah, absolutely. Like I felt that for sure. Yeah. 100%. Um, and that's where these characters uh, live every moment of their lives. Yeah. You know? And it's about, who are your people? Who are you willing to do that for? Right. So, and I think a lot of the emotion of the show comes from that. And a lot of the, I think, uh, surprises in season five come from redrawing those lines, mm-hmm. you know, yeah. not same as it was in season four and be, and prior to that, it's different. Now people have different allegiances and, and, uh, like I said, the lines have, have changed. Yeah. So, uh, I think that's one of the more interesting aspects of the show. It's interesting. So that... sorry, hope. <laughs> sorry, 
question. Uh, it's interesting to me that you said um, you thought that Jasper has was kind of like a, a source of light in season four. That that transitions into another question we got um, from Jessica at Jesse Monkey. Um, I assume on Twitter. Uh, she says, so I personally loved what you did with Jasper. He was one of my favorite characters on the show. And I think it was an important story to tell because it would probably realistically happen to someone. And I think it made sense that it happened to Jasper. Um, so the question is, will Jasper's memory be felt since it's, uh, been six years since he died? Yeah. I mean, first of all, thank you for saying that. Um, I think the Jasper story was really important for us in a lot of ways. And I do think we, we obviously, like we do with every story that we tell, wanted to make sure that um, we were being true to sort of uh, the condition that that character was, was, was living. Mm -hmm. uh, some post-traumatic stress. Obviously, he had some depression. And obviously, in the real world, there is overcoming. You know, you can get better. You can get help. You know, you can find ways to to not you know end your life obviously but it was important to us to me to tell the story uh and have it and have it end the way that it ended because unfortunately we're, we are living in a time when uh and uh, you know i'm probably not the best person to speak on this issue but but more soldiers are dying from uh of suicide than in combat and so, mm -hmm. you know, I felt like it was it was uh, as hard and tragic and horrible uh, as that ending was. Um, I felt and I think I, if I recall, one of you guys lived through maybe your own ba battle. Aaron. Yeah, that's well. Yeah. My my father in law died uh, by suicide. And then I also have depression and have been suicidal. So, yeah. So like it hit me really hard. Well, I'm really, first of all, I'm very, very sorry to hear that. Um, but, you know, obviously, in like I said, in the real world, we can hopefully avail ourselves of professionals and there's medicine people can take. And, you know, and sometimes that's not the answer, obviously. So, you know, I, maybe we shouldn't veer towards this direction so much on this conversation. But I definitely feel like uh, dramatically that was the right ending for that for that story. Mm -hmm. uh, to answer the question in a, in, as it was asked, uh, yes, we will absolutely feel his, his, his memory uh, in season five. Mm -hmm. um, you know, one of the things that we do, um, I think that that's one of the things that we do well is when a character, when a character dies, it's not just, like they're gone and forgotten and never and never to be heard from again. For the most part, there have probably been characters who maybe uh, did. Uh, there's maybe one I could think of whose death, although it was really hard on screen, um, his his memory hasn't been felt enough, and that's probably Sinclair. Maybe Finn to a yeah. certain extent as well. Yeah, mm -hmm. but Sinclair even you know came back in such a powerful way for Raven in season four. You know, like as the kind of yeah, uh, yeah, that's the, true. You're the right. The voice telling <laughs> her to the voice telling her, you know, like don't give up. You're to keep fighting. Yeah, in in yes, the episode you're... where uh, where Jasper committed suicide finally. Yeah, yeah, that was. That was, uh, you know, we juxtaposed those two stories mm -hmm. in a way because obviously she chose a different route. Um, 
but anyway, yeah, I mean, I feel like um, one of the things that we try to do is to make death on the show because it is a constant part of the show, obviously. But we we need it to change our heroes, our our, our the survivors. So we need it to have impact on them. So you look at a death like, um, like right from the beginning, you know, Wells when he died, he he changed Clark and hit the way that she. Well, I mean, I guess it probably wasn't his death; it was his life. But uh, she didn't know her father, her mother was responsible for killing her father until. Um, until the episode that Wells died in. One of the things right. we also do is we really um, want you to, to we, we try very hard in the episode that a character is going to die to maybe for the first time, you know, like for instance, Finn. Finn was kind of uh, cheating on his girlfriend, right? right I mean, right, right. very much so. <laughs> but, but not exactly, like, you know, the most admirable thing. But um, in the episode where he died, Spacewalker, we told you that he actually was pretty awesome. You know, he took the fall for Raven. She was the real Spacewalker. Right. Um, And, you know, so that's generally the formula. You know, we like to uh, this is not answering the question at all, but we like to in an episode where a character is going to leave us. We want to maximize the emotional impact of that death. And so we do things like what I just said with Finn in that episode. It was really important for us to love Finn for making that, you know, heroic sacrifice for Raven. Um, In the episode, uh, to, to get back to Wells, in the episode where Wells died, we told you that he held on to the truth about the fact that Abby was responsible for Jake's death so that Clark wouldn't have to experience the pain of that realization. Mm -hmm. That's how good a friend he was to her. He let her hate him for it because hating her mother would have been too hard, you know? And then we killed him. So going (laughs) from the ultimate high to the ultimate low is what we do. That's age old, timeless, dramatic, you know, technique is, is going from like the ultimate high to the ultimate low to, maximize the impact of that low of that death so you know sometimes maybe we've gone a little too extreme with it but that's what that's what we do uh to to sort of maximize those moments to maximize the emotional uh pain of those moments we want it to hurt we do i hate to say it that way because i don't want to hurt people for real obviously but it's a tragedy so you know and certainly not to compare myself or our show to Shakespeare, but Romeo and Juliet is a, is a pretty great example of, you know, Romeo takes poison that makes him look dead. Juliet doesn't know. So she fucking sees him dead and kills herself. He wakes up, sees she's dead, kills himself for real. Right. 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 A happy story. So (laughs) that's, that's kind of, you know, what we're going for. Um, So anyway, I'm sure I'm getting tons of viewers with that. With that. <laughs> come to the hundred. Yes, come watch the show. Yeah, exactly. You'll never be happy again. Uh, well, I mean, I, you know, I think the the thing like, like sending me mean tweets. Anyway. <laughs> well, I think I mean I think the thing about like 
you know, like with Shakespearean tragedy, like with Romeo and Juliet and things like that, you know, you had these terrible things happen to the characters that you get really attached to that, that mend something in the world. So like Romeo and Juliet die tragically and they don't get to be together, but it, it heals the rift between the Montagues and the Capulets. So like there is sometimes like, you know, you lose a character or something tragic happens when you really attach to and, and it opens up space for, you know, for a different, story to unfold or for the future to be changed or for something else to happen down the line that that slice of story wouldn't be possible without the tragic part of it. So I think, you know, going back to the earlier question about, about hope, you know, I feel like there's, there's sort of two different, I guess there's a question of like, where is there lightness or humor or, or levity or, you know, kind of outright happiness in the show, which is one thing and which is sort of fewer and far between. But then there's this other sort of more, more abstract and, and maybe less like upbeat, but more kind of forward reaching sense of hope of like, are the things that are happening to these characters, even when they're tragic, sort of moving towards a way of like making Cath- the world better or changing like, does cathartic. It, yeah, 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 yeah. So, uh, so like, I would- I would say the difference between, you know, like not to, 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 to belabor the Shakespeare metaphor, but the difference between Romeo and Juliet and the hundred, aside from the fact that like Romeo and Juliet's one of the greatest things ever written and the hundred <laughs> probably isn't, is that that was, that was over, right? That story ended. And so, yes, while it mended the, the fences that you're talking about, you know, I suppose on some level it led to, it led to something positive. By the way, I don't even remember that about that story. So if that's it's true, it's only in the, it's in the it's in the final um, soliloquy. Same thing with with, yeah, with Hamlet sort of... when Fortinbras comes in, like the very yeah. end when everybody's dead, he kind of stands around and goes like, "Wow, this sucks, but I'm going to be king now, and we're going to fix it, and it's going to be okay." So yeah. it's, it's kind of like it's... a you don't see it, but there's a moment where one character like tells you, "Here's how things are going to." Yeah, end. it's sort of the kind of. It's kind of the thing that like separates Shakespearean tragedy from just something that's like a real fucking bummer, which is there's always like like the one except one exception in Shakespeare is King Lear. And in fact, in fact, in the 18th century, um, King Lear was like considered unperformable. As because written. it didn't have that, because like, it was the one good man depressing. standing at the end. Yeah, no, being you get like, to the end and yeah. everything, everyone is yep. dead. All the good people are There's dead. There's no Horatio. Yeah. Exactly. And so, so like, in the 18th century, they, they changed the, like, they rewrote the ending of Lear to perform it because it was considered too horrible. Anyway, that's an aside. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> Welcome to Metastation, Jason. <laughs> <laughs> Can you imagine if there was Twitter back in like Shakespeare's day? Oh man! Oh my God! Shakespeare would have been awesome at Twitter. He just oh yeah, been, like like tweeting insults at people all day long. He would have yeah. been the biggest troll. <laughs> a couplet, a couplet's probably less than 140 characters. I feel like he could have made it work. Oh certainly. It'd have been a sonnet thing, but he'd have gotten off uh, for sure. He'd have gotten off it. But anyway, <laughs> um, my point that I was trying to make was that. You know those stories are over at, at right. the sort of tragic climaxes. Yeah, Whereas yeah. Yeah. on a long-running television show, you know, it can't be a happy ending. You know, we at, after those moments. You know, maybe yeah. in the series finale when we come to that moment, whenever that is in season ten, then you know we'll ultimately be able to to have some kind of horrible tragedy lead to some kind of catharsis that it you know will kind of leave you with some hope. But the truth is, 
you know, the various deaths in in our show, I feel like for me anyway, what they need to do is leave a mark on the survivors, you know? Right. So yeah. Octavia loses Lincoln in a horribly tragic way, but it changes her forever. You know, she she spends epi- season the entire season in, of season four essentially spiraling uh, from that loss mm-hmm. until, she, until she figures out a way to finally sort of, you know, cathartically come back from it um, and, and save everybody in, the, in die all, die merrily. Um, you know, same thing with Clark as she reacted to Lex's death. I mean, mm-hmm. that's been for, has, has in many ways haunted her and still does and changed her uh, and will always, you know, mm-hmm. same thing with, in terms of Clark, unfortunately, she's experienced too much of it probably, but her father, mm-hmm. you know, we we witnessed that in flashback, but that that and obviously you know the audience didn't have the same um, connection with with Jake as they do with Lincoln or Finn or Jasper. But you know those those that loss is felt powerfully too. And to get back to the question, Jasper's death will definitely have those types of ripples in season five. Like okay. we will we we make quite a meal emotionally out of people, um, out of that as early as 501. Okay. So that, yeah. that makes Good. Sense. I mean, okay. like, I have to say like for me, you know, I, I had a really, really hard time with that episode and with what, and with that scene in particular, like I haven't been able to rewatch that. And that's, you know, a lot of that is just kind of like personal, you know, people, people re- responded to that so differently. And I think so much of it isn't even like whether they've been suicidal themselves or had lost someone to suicide even because it's just about like your own particular sets of trauma and emotions. And like, for some people I know I talked to who've been through that kind of thing, watching it was very cathartic. And for me, it was extremely painful. And so, you know, there's this, so much of it just kind of comes down to you personally, but I remember thinking about it afterwards and it was something that I kind of struggled with for a little while, but I, but just thinking like, okay, like, the thing that was important to me is that um, is that the story, like Jasper's story, not end with his death. You know that that the story of of how his his ever having been alive and had these relationships continue to shape the people that he left behind um, be told. Because I think that's yeah. so much when we with any kind of story, you know, sort of fictionally in death. So often these things get dropped, and especially I think in stories, one problem with sort of fiction and suicide is that too often, you know, suicide is the end of a story instead of the beginning of one. And I think like, it's, it's so important to tell, tell, tell the story of what happens to people after that. And so it does make, it makes me very happy to know that, you know, that Jasper will continue to sort of have these effects in the ways that so many other characters have. And I agree, like, honestly, I think one thing that's, you know, in a show where a lot of people die, on the one hand, you can look at that as being very bleak, but on the other hand, there's something like really profoundly beautiful about like how much individual people matter on this show all the time. You know what I mean? Like, like Lincoln will never stop mattering, you know, even though he's gone, Lexa will never stop mattering. Jake will never stop mattering, you know? And so there's something really kind of like human and beautiful about that, um, that I think is very real. And, and I, I do appreciate yeah, because that's life. You know? Yeah, totally. Real yeah. Real world, when the people that we love die, you know, we don't forget them. We, mm-hmm. we, 
we honor their memories and you know mm-hmm. we light candles for them still on the on the anniversaries of the of yeah the and you know it ha- it changes you in profound ways and sometimes we regret not saying things that we should have said to them and sometimes mm-hmm. you know there's no happiness to be found other than like I'm not going to make that mistake again yeah exactly some- right yeah yeah right. and I yeah. think and I and I also appreciate like I one thing I appreciate about Octavia's story um is that like it you know grief is often ugly and like often just mm-hmm. you know like the the things that it that it does to you that losing someone does to you can be really messed up you know like anger is a humongous part of grief you know it's not just sadness so i think mm-hmm. the, the fact that we get a lot of very very different you know we get it's not just like sort of one story about grief and we're done but we get a sort of a whole range of responses um i think is is unusual mm-hmm. honestly on television um yeah we it's always there we, we try like i said i mean you know someone like someone like um it's sad like as we as we're talking about this as a kind of like series of deaths i'm realizing you know it's hard to be a peacemaker the people the people that are trying on the hundred the people that have tried to like be peacemakers lincoln lexa uh even finn to a certain degree was Mm -hmm. the guy who you know have met tragic ends because it's a tragic fucking world you know Mm -hmm. i mean that's that's not to say that they weren't 100 percent right in in what they were espousing but, uh, you know, unfortunately, in, and I think if you look through history at the Gandhis of the world, you know, look what happens. It's like people suck on some level. And <laughs> unfortunately, you know, in a, in a post-apocalyptic tragedy where everybody's trying to survive and, and do what's right for themselves and their clan or their, you know, their family, that means that they're doing something bad to the other guy. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and also peacemakers are not good for storytelling because they're going to resolve all your conflict. Right. What are you going to do? You know? <laughs> <laughs> then this show would be over. Yeah, yeah. Then we'd have no show. Well, and I think that's, you know, I think in some ways this, this ties back into the, you know, to the hope thing too, because it's like, you know, you can't, you can't control in real life whether or not somebody dies, but the, like the real, the, the, I guess tragic is the wrong word, but the the darkest, saddest, I think, piece of it is, is like, if that person dies and stops mattering, you know? So, like, if yeah. the peacemakers on the show, like, if we're losing, you know, we lose Lincoln, we lose Lexa, we lose, you know, Jasper, you know, we lose characters we become attached to who meant so much to people, you know, if they die, but if they die and the story becomes about sort of, like, um, as though they were never there, that's part that's really sort of like that sort of nihilistic grim like oh my god this is this is really like that's hard to watch but but if they die in a way that continues to shape the story they can you know like like jake we're talking about before it's like a perfect example you know he he died so early on that like we didn't like we never actually met him in the present like he was dead before the story even started um but it was really cool to see last season, you know, he's so present for Abby. He's in that scene with the ring. He's so present for Clark and all of these sort of leadership negotiations. And so it's like, you know, the way that the characters who knew, and even like Jaha and Kane have sort of moments of like acknowledging, like he was a real person to them too. You know, like Jake Griffin existed and mattered to people. And, and so it isn't just the fact that like the fact that he died is, is sad, but it isn't, um, 
it isn't bleak and nihilistic because the choices he made and the person he was and how he died continue to have these sort of ongoing ripple effects. And so that's, I think, the thing, you know, for both of us about Jasper is it's like it isn't, you know, it isn't like, you know, anyone saying you should never tell a story about suicide or, or that anyone is saying like that you should never tell us like that it wouldn't make sense or fit in this world that a character would make the choice that Jasper made or that Jasper would be the person making that choice. It's just sort of a question of like, you know, because we've loved him so much for so long and he was such a core part of like from the very beginning, from the pilot, you know, such a huge part of the story, you know, feeling like um, those moments last season with like, you know, like that there wasn't, like there's wasn't time for anyone but Monty really and Harper kind of to to like really take a moment with that you know like there wasn't time for like Clark to react well, necessarily well, Bellamy you know got a moment I mean Bellamy did yeah sure Bellamy Bellamy, Bellamy got, got, got to say goodbye by, yeah 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 I just maybe it was it was more like I think I just wanted I I I to... wanted Clark to be able yeah, to like yeah take a it. second with it you know. You wanted to, um, to you want to be able to to slow down and mourn a little bit, and yeah. the story doesn't the allow. The story just that. wasn't. Yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, and that's that's the case. Obviously, that's what this show is. It doesn't stop. Clark is forced to suck it up and right. go on and and be the hero. She can't. She exactly. can't to stop and and really break down and and do what most people do in the face of lost loved ones. Right. 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 You can't do that, and that's part of the tragedy. And definitely the audience needs that. And I think, you know, we're going to see some of that in season five regarding Jasper, for sure. You know, one of the other things that happens in the six year time jump, of course, is it's now six years later. Right. Right. It's yeah. Years removed from, you know, Finn's death and and uh, mm. Jasper's death and Lex's death and Lincoln's death. It's six years later. Mm. So. As we know in the real world, like six years later, you you process and you move on with your life and you figure out that life does go on and that you owe it to the memory of the person that that you lost to continue and, and you know, try to make a better world for, for the people that are now still among the living. Right. Mm -hmm. yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. But, but yet we still do, uh, you know, pay homage to some of those characters, even this season, you know, their memories are not, are not forgotten for sure. Yeah, um, yeah. You know, that's just a, a, a reality of, of a six year time jump. It's like, yeah. those things are oh, not sure. fresh. As yeah. No, you're, you're out of the, like the raw kind of, you know, initial phase of grieving and you're sort of into like, I've now recalibrated my life to sort of the absence of this person and and my sort of world is different and my life is different, but like I'm moving forward and things kind of go on. But I do think it's cool to know that that this six year time jump, you know, everyone's in a different place with that grief, but the people that they lost, you know, six years later are still important. I think that's I think that's an that's an important part of the story too. Like there your grief is different and you're not like actively in it all the time. Like you sort of adapt and move forward but that that person hasn't ceased to exist you know like six years hasn't like erased them I also shows up, oh, go ahead. I was just gonna say it shows up in in emotional moments and surprising mm -hmm. uh analogous events or things happen and, and make you remember or make you think and you know certainly uh we will see a lot of that um this season Lincoln's death is is sort of um 
can't remember if there's any overt references to it, but certainly Octavia has internalized. He's he's sort of it's still present in in little ways. Uh, I don't want to talk too much about what we're going to see in in season six of uh, season five uh, with regard to the characters that we've lost, other than to say that we will see some. Well, and I was thinking also. I mean, it was cool. At Unity Days they had the the prop um, display. They had a bunch of props. Yeah. And that was that was really awesome. And one of the things that we got to look at, you know, closely was the strap on Clark's gun, which has the names of all the people that she's lost uh, scratched into it, which is one of yeah. the like, little details that I thought was, you know, really yeah. lovely. I love that. You know, that I like, really love that. that. Like Clark is like walking around with all these names, you know, sort of memorialized. Well, first mm-hmm. of all, first of all, Paxton is a genius. He's so oh, good. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, my God. They were awesome. Yeah, they when they you know we talked about him doing that, and I was I was excited about the idea um, because it's fun to be able to sort of like see some of that stuff and get yeah. your hands on uh, for sure. Um, um, that is something that they totally came up with on their own. You know, really? like again, I, I talked about this idea of how our crew uh, is so good that they fill in the blanks and they and they populate the spaces. Uh, to make them feel like actual rooms and not sets on a soundstage somewhere mm-hmm. with little details, you know, I mean, I'm detail oriented, but like that detail of like carving the names of the dead into Clark's gun, that was 100%. I don't know if it was Paxton's idea or someone on his, on his teams, but you know, I loved it. Of course, you yeah. know, I mean, yeah, yeah. I, I had to approve it, but it was not my idea. And I think it's, I think it's pretty special. Has it ever shown up on camera? Like, has that been... Um, I don't, th- I think there was like one still that was close enough to the gun that somebody was able to zoom in and could see the big names, but like not, not ever like a close up or anything. I don't think. Yeah. I mean, not from what we've seen, just from no, the end yeah. of the finale. I don't yeah, know yeah, if yeah, there's obviously yeah. more in season five, but from what we've seen now. Yeah. It's just like a good Easter egg. In season five, but maybe in the <laughs> finale four, we see her looking... Yeah, I think there was one shot there that got close enough that somebody zoomed in and then like could see that there were some names on it. And then I think maybe somebody I think I saw it like on Twitter. I don't know if it was somebody from the crew or or whatever, but there was like a picture floating around. It might have been it might have been from like somebody live tweeting the episode and saying, you know, Easter egg they were there. I don't know. Yeah, oh, I, I mean, think, yeah, I think it was. That's what happens, again, when you are on a show for as long as this one's now been on, and everybody is so dialed in, you know? Yeah. The <laughs> actors are so dialed into their roles, and uh, the crew is so dialed into their particular, you know, department and what they need to do. It's amazing. It's amazing uh, how well they work together and how complimentary uh, the sort of various pieces of the machine are, you know, yeah. after five, years, it's just been, and, and again, cause people stick because they are proud of what they're doing. Um, you know, you get even, it's sort of a positive feedback loop, right? Like it yeah. gets, it gets better because of that. Yeah. Uh, and so a little detail, like carving the names of someone into their, into the, into Clark's gun is something that just adds another sort of layer, um, to this world and makes it feel real, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So. Uh, so our next question is from uh, B, who is at uh, Belarks on Twitter, and she wants to know, how do you perceive the shift in the Blake siblings relationship in, oh, she asked, she said in season four, but maybe also potentially like where that positions us for season five. Hmm. 
Yeah, I mean, obviously the Blake relationship, that sibling relationship has been uh, at the center of so much of this story. Mm-hmm. We talked about Abby and Clark and, and obviously Bellamy and Clark, as I've said many times, is sort of one of the spines of the show, certainly, if not the most important, one of the most important relationships. Um, and the Bellamy-Octavia relationship has evolved in <laughs> many ways. She's obviously tested her big brother. Um, <laughs> um, and, you know, from the beginning, it was important to me. Like, I knew people were going to stick with Bellamy at the beginning, despite how, some of the horrible things he was doing, because of how much he loved her and how he was doing it to protect her. And, and you know, obviously, he's taken some steps backwards in his in his development just along the, like, good-bad spectrum. Mm-hmm. Uh, but ultimately, you know, that relationship has been for him the sort of, like, unshakable, unbreakable thing. And Octavia, I think, has taken it for granted much more than him. As, by the mm-hmm. way, younger siblings often do. You know, their relationship, oh, yeah. their relationship in many ways it was parental. Obviously, he was... Mm-hmm. Uh, she was thrust in his hands as a, as a baby when he was something like, I don't know, eight years old already. And, um, you know, he was responsible for her life in so many ways that like a brother or sibling shouldn't be. Yeah. Uh, and so, you know, that's been a touchstone for him from the beginning of his life, really. Um, and, and so I think it, what we, in season four, I mean, obviously they take a pretty dark turn. Uh, she still blames him at the beginning of the season for Lincoln's death. Um, we see her, I think, I think it's episode five. I can't remember exactly in season four saying essentially like the only reason I haven't killed you yet is because you're my brother. Yeah. Like, you know, it doesn't get much more tragic or bad than that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. That's a, yeah. That's a Nadir it's... if I've ever seen one. <laughs> yeah. That's not ideal. <laughs> um, other than like short of actually killing him. Yeah. Right. Exactly. Right. Um, but yes, you know, then he real he thinks she's dead later in the season, and that's horribly tragic. And realizing that she's not, I think maybe it's right before that. Right? Yeah, I think it was right before that, if I remember correctly. Yeah, I'm screwing up. I'm screwing up. I'm screwing up my own story. But yeah, so um, I think you know, obviously by the end of the season, it's really important to, for her to hear that he has faith in her, and that she, you know, uh, that that scene that she uh, sort of overhears between Rowan and Bellamy in, in uh, Dial Dimerily. Um, where she, where he says you know essentially she's gonna beat you and yeah. he is important to her to hear and then of course Clark the dastardly uh, villain that she is steals <laughs> her. Uh, I'm gonna get tweets about that I'm sure but she steals the bunker at the end of that episode and we could talk about why that wasn't a villain's move later but anyway. Um, Bellamy opens the bunker and and Octavia has faith that he's going to come through and he does. And I think that's really a healing, obviously, moment for the two of them. And then, of course, you know, uh, they're ripped apart tragically for six years. So, again, it was like, okay, that got a little too good. We got to we got to separate them. Um, (laughs) Obviously, in in season five, as we begin the story, he's, you know, dying to get back down to the ground to to be with her, to see if she's okay. He doesn't know, you know, yeah. what's become of his sister. And a large uh, part of the season is about that. You know, the, the Blake relationship is very, very key this season. Um, 
you know, he, who, the person that they each confront when they reunite is, is surprising to the other, but much mm-hmm. more for Bellamy, like who, who he finds when he sees his little sister, um, is something that will, uh, take him almost a whole season to reconcile. Oh, wow. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So anyway, <laughs> I don't want to, do about it. I don't want to spoil it too much about it, but, uh, it's really important and it's really, um, I think it's really emotional and, and ultimately satisfying. So yeah. I hope I love the Blakes. I mean, anytime there's like a juicy mm-hmm. Blake sibling arc, I'm happy. Aaron well, and I both have brothers, so we yes. really love, like, we, we deeply, like, love and treasure sibling stories on television. And I have an older brother. I have an older brother. Yeah. So I'm, like, I have a lot of feelings about Bellamy as a big brother with <laughs> a somewhat, you know, uh, with a little sister with a big independent streak. <laughs> I, have well, a, I have a brother and a sister, so I, I'm definitely uh, I'm with you. Yeah. Are they older or younger? Younger. Uh, oh, you're the oldest. Oh, okay. I'm Bellamy, man. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> My wife says that to me all the time. <laughs> yes. I would, Sorry. I would I'm believe horrible. that. I would believe that from from watching the show. Like I have to say, as a younger sibling, that's that was written by an older sibling. <laughs> <laughs> oh man, that's hilarious. I, tor- I tormented my my little sister though, so I'm I'm definitely sort of more of the classic uh big brother in that regard so. yeah i uh I hold on to... be... go ahead uh i had i um my, both my parents were oldest siblings as well so i used to get very upset when i was a kid that no one in my family could understand what it was like to be me as the youngest child <laughs> <laughs> i thought it was very unfair <laughs> Well, in my family, and maybe this is some of where it comes from, like, I got blamed for everything. Ah. <laughs> that's that's how it was in my family, too. My older sister was the one who, like, you know, like, she, like, struggled in school, and she had more, like, behavioral, like, she had, like, just more, like, challenges when we were younger. And so, like, the super strict rules were always, like, built off of, like, what did Catherine do? And then the rest of us would sort of, like, you know, like, she got to see on a test. So then it was like, okay, none of us can watch TV on school nights ever. And we were like, what the fuck is this bullshit? But then she, I think, felt because she was the oldest that she was having to kind of, like, have everything sort of, like, you know, like, carry the weight for everyone. And we were all like, this is ridiculous. We so, really I'm never... <laughs> Wow. You know what? Let's, let's, I was about to tell a whole story about my childhood. But why don't we wait till the next time we have drinks to do that? All right. Yes. Sounds good. Let's do it. <laughs> okay. um, all right. To get back to the actual topic of the podcast. So this question is from uh, Crystal from uh, Black Girl Nerds uh, at Wordy Blurred on Twitter. Um, and I was super excited you picked this question because I love this question. Uh, thematically, yeah. there are similarities between Gaia and Echo. They're both complete devotees to the grounder religion. Now they're in, co- in a context where they each have to confront the facts behind their beliefs. Their mystical totems are extensions of tech. Can we expect to see any parallels in the characters' journeys in season five, I assume she means? Yeah, I mean, I picked this question because it was it struck me that those two characters I don't think have ever been in a scene together. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I don't think that B.A. sang one scene. Okay, I could be wrong, but 
they're there's seemingly like nothing in common mm-hmm. um, but and so the and so the uh whoever wrote the question what was her name i'm sorry crystal I, her name is crystal crystal, crystal uh, I wonder when she says echo, they both have tech totems. What's Echo's tech totem? I know what, obviously what, uh, what guy. I think she might just mean the flame, but in, in, insofar as like uh-huh. Echo is, or sort of expressed belief yeah. in that religion. I think that's what she means. Yeah. I mean, I would say, although of course Echo does believe in the flame because, you know, most grounders of the, uh, you know, do. Yeah. Uh, and, it's the truth it's not like we i i was thinking about this in thinking about this question it's like these this is not like a normal religion where you're you have faith that there's a higher power like we know the flame is real and we know you know some people look at the reveal that it's a tech uh, technology and not actually a spiritual thing as a somehow you know uh almost like a lessening of its importance i think i look at it as actually sort of elevating it to the level of truth. You know, yeah. Arthur Stark says that any technology sufficiently advanced uh, resembles magic and, and or something like that. And, and on some level, you know, the, the knowledge that this, this computer chip contains the minds of 40 commanders. And that ultimately like, you know, begins to beg the question, what is a human? Are you your body or are you your mind? Yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, you know, things, these are things that we, you know, obviously could get into yeah. b- b- based, on, based on the flame. My old, my point of, of digressing is just to say, you know, it's not just faith, it's truth. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so Gaia, you know, believes really strongly. She's a devout flame keeper. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's her cause. That's her calling. That's her mission. Uh, and I think similarly, Echo uh, is um, a devoted warrior for her cause too. But her cause is not the same as Gaia's. Her cause is Asgida, right? Like, right, yeah. she's devoted to to her people, and she will do anything for Queen Naya, and then subsequently for King Rowan. And, you know, ultimately that is a similarity. Like they're both warriors for their particular causes, uh, I guess is, is, is a way I would put it. And, and so in that way, they are similar. In that way, they're also very similar to Clark. I mean, mm-hmm. I was thinking about Echo, you know, being, will, being willing to do anything for her people for you know and some some orders that she followed you know not to make excuses for what she did by saying she was following orders but what she was doing she was doing for her people what she was doing she was doing to 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 you know for asgata whereas clark who's our hero who we look at you know for the most part as as being you know the good guy even though we make a point of saying there are no good guys and this is one of the reasons why we do that uh, Clark has done equally difficult, tragic, awful things in the name of, you know, keeping her people safe. So on some level, Echo and Clark aren't that different, you know? Yeah. Uh, mm-hmm. That's what this show really is about. It's sort of like what its perspective, you know, I mean, we could have told you said something before, which strikes me as very true. It's like they Echo could, of course, be the hero of her own story. Yeah. And it. 
um, if we had told the story from her perspective. Um, and Clark would have been the bad guy, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, and, you know, that's an exciting challenge. I think this season people will be surprised by um, how they feel about Echo, I hope. Um, I think she's, Tasi is amazing and a good addition to the, to the cast. Um, Tati is amazing also as Gaia and really very important this season. And Oh, yay. Both of them are, both of them are fish out of water in, in a lot of ways. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think uh, like, I'm, I'm excited to see, they're both characters where like they, they had a sort of set of beliefs um, and ideologies about the world that gave them a very definite sense of like place and of truth and of purpose. And in both of their cases, that's been completely like just destroyed, like shattered. And so like the, in that, aspect, yeah. I'm like really, there are two characters I'm really, really interested to see how they cope with that because that is like, you know, almost more sort of emotionally catastrophic even than just like the, you know, the sheer number of people who died is more just sort of like their enti- an entire way of life that they know is gone. And so how do they cope with that? And like, that's just like a really, really interesting sort of story to, to look into. So I'm like really interested for both of them, like seeing how they cope with that. Yeah. yeah. And, and it's definitely a thing. So yeah. we will see, uh-huh. we will see that this season for sure. You know, as Gita is gone, there are no clans anymore. Right, like, right. right. One crew has become a thing. And there is no, um, there are no sort of like divisions anymore within the group in the bunker, mm-hmm. uh, forged in a very very difficult way. But but that is that is definitely happening down there. And true, there are no nightbloods. And the so so you know uh, Gaia is forced to find to put her allegiance behind Octavia, who by the way, as the winner of the conclave, definitely sort of earned it right yeah 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 yeah. you know she's she's a a a sidekick in a way of of octavia's this season is in large Mm -hmm. part responsible for who octavia becomes um and uh likewise you know echo is forced to sort of redefine redraw the lines of who she is yeah six years that she spends you know on a fucking spaceship i mean that's a you know (laughs) that was possible Grounders in space. I want to yeah. see that. I want to see that. Yeah, so, yeah, exactly. We don't. We do get there. Um. So, quick sidebar before the next question, because hopping back to something earlier in in the um, Gaia Echo conversation made me think about. Um. I was going to ask you, have you watched Altered Carbon yet? Um. I watched the pilot of Altered Carbon. Didn't love it. I have to say. Okay. Beautiful. I think pilots are very, very hard, you know, like yeah. to cram so much exposition into that first episode. Uh, and that's how it felt to me a little bit. That yeah. I'm, I am told that the series is great and that, you know, if I get, if I invest the time that I will, that I will be richly rewarded. And so I plan on binging it and my, my schedule's suddenly much freer because the, you know, <laughs> we're done really right. one more episode to post and then I can uh, binge and catch up on certain things. So, um, you know, well, and I, they shoot in Vancouver. So there's some, yeah. And like yeah. Deacon's in it. And yeah. Um, 
but it it really like it it orbits so much around that question of you know like the sort of fundamental premise of it is like human technology or human consciousness lives on these chips that can just sort of be moved from body to body and so then like what is a body and what makes a person a person and it sort of ties into all of these like um you know that sort of pings a lot of like alley sort of city of light questions you know like how real is the version of this person that sort of lives in this AI world. Um, religion plays a really interesting role in it too. Like if you're, if you're Catholic or if you're like chip is coded that you're religious, then you can't be reincarnated. So there's a kind of like theology and say, so just, it ties into like a lot of themes that I feel like you'll be really into that, that really echo this kind of like technology plus human consciousness, plus sort of social structures, you know, kind of stuff so i think i think you dig it i but the the first episode was harder to get through it's a little it was a little too gruesome for me like it was like a lot more blood than i'm used to you might love it for that reason but <laughs> I mean, definitely, i'm definitely intrigued by what i want yeah like. you check it out yeah um recommend but yeah i mean you know i when i was when i was developing um season three in the ai story reading a lot of books about about AI and about, mm -hmm. you know, Ray Kurzweil, um, somebody who I read quite a bit of, and he talks a lot about uploading our consciousness uh, mm -hmm. into the machine and essentially becoming eternal uh, as a result of it. That's really where those ideas uh, came from. Um, and so ultimately, yeah, definitely, I want to, I want to, I want to check it out um, and will. Good. Okay. I will, I'm very interested in your thoughts. Um, <laughs> So, Marty jealous as hell about how much money they had to make that show. Oh my oh, god! I'm sure, yeah. Like yeah. The, the for for that reason alone, just for like watching it, thinking like, how much did this cost? Like, it's amazing. <laughs> yeah, it's crazy. I'm I'm like so envious of of a budget like that. I'm sure, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um. So the next question. Uh, uh, is from Sarah, who is at Marcus Kane Beard on Twitter. Um, oh. And uh, she is, she's wonderful. She's a friend of ours. Um, and her question is, hi, Jason. You've tweeted about Ian directing episode 510, and you have no idea how excited I am for it. I loved his episode from season four. The Jasper Monty sequence still haunts my dreams. I literally cried while watching it, not going to lie. Can you talk <laughs> about how he is behind the camera. Can you tease anything from his episode in season five? Thank you for taking the time to answer our questions. Uh, you're welcome. <laughs> um, by the way, great Twitter handle. Obviously, you are. <laughs> <laughs> she got to meet. She got to meet Ian at the con. She was at the con in Paris, and there's her pictures. She's like, she's like touching his beard. It's so cute. <laughs> it's That's really, my, really adorable. <laughs> Just let's be real, that might cross a lot. But anyway, <laughs> uh, it was done in the most charming way. And I'm sure Ian was incredibly open to it. Um, so yeah, here's the deal. His first episode, which was that episode for us, the Jasper one, it was unfair in some way because, sorry, I'm, I'm eating a little bit. I felt my attention, uh, like my blood sugar level waning. <laughs> I this has been a long conversation. It has. Nobody will sit to Welcome me. to meditation. <laughs> um, but yeah, so uh, so his first episode, he didn't really get the complete directorial experience because uh, there were a lot of production snafus and we had to pull scenes up from another episode uh, because of an uh, as one of the cast got sick. I can't remember who it was, but I, it really screwed his 
his process up, his uh, episode. That sucks. So he had to come back. Unfortunately, because he's a cast member of the show, he's there uh, the whole time. Otherwise, you know, there there are it's weird. You've got to like fly directors back in and they're on to other things and you find other directors to make up their work. And this is probably a little bit too in the weeds. But, you know, and yet, despite the fact that he had to shoot three days and then stop and then shoot two days and then stop and then go on Christmas break and come back and shoot two scenes after Christmas break. The episode was great and found myself in post working on that episode saying, you know, is Ian really good or did the cast and the crew elevate their games for one of their own, which is something that often happens. You know, it's like mm-hmm. they're going to fucking play their hearts out for, for you because right. you're one of them. Yeah. Uh, they're, now our crew is always good and our cast is always good. And so, you know, elevating their game from the already elevated position is saying something, but so I, I sat there saying, is he really this good or was it just everybody elevating their game? I could, to be honest with you, didn't know the answer to that question last season. Then we gave him an episode this season. And I think it's episode, what episode is his BAs? Is it 10 again? So again, he, I think, is on the board for 10. And I was blown away. Like, it's such a good episode. And he puts the camera in interesting places. He's got a really good eye. Obviously, he's a wonderful actor. And so he gets really rich, great performances out of the cast. And so now I can officially say after, you know, working on two of his episodes with him, that he's good. He's a good director. (laughs) He'll have a career as a director if he wants one. You know, I mean, Mm -hmm. I will keep him working on my show as long as there's a show. Um, But, you know, I honestly think he's, he's a talent behind the camera so that's what i will say about that it's not just me being political and generous it happens to be the truth it's very very good that's awesome that's so nice that's so lovely to hear (laughs) is there anybody (laughs) are there any other cast members who've expressed interest in directing that you might entertain um yes i have sort of steered a few people towards it i'm not going i don't think i should reveal who it is because you know that's up to them and i don't know if they plan on um really sort of pursuing it aggressively because you know but there are a few people on the show who i think would be wonderful directors if they chose to do one of the things i love about this job and being able to have it for as many years as we've now had it is that we can groom talent we can i I watch people that start out as pas in our office you know, become writers in the in yeah. the writing room and go on to write wonderful episodes and yeah. go off and have, you know, big careers and, and to be, play a small part in that is really exciting and rewarding. Uh, as I sit here with BA, I know that she's the next one to like, you know, make that transition. Although I don't know if it's going to be next year because I can't p- part with her. BA. <laughs> BA, BA is the best. Uh, she is wonderful. <laughs> We love her. She's John Travolta. Um, <laughs> but yeah, so, you know, and the, and the same thing goes with directors. We Ian Samoyle, who's been our first AD, one of our first ADs since season one, uh, directed his first episode last season, uh, and he directed another one this season. And he's a great director on the cusp of having a career as a director. I don't want to lose him as a first AD, but because he's so good, he's so good there. Um, 
but you know, being able to do that for people is is exciting. Michael Blundell, who's our DP since season two and is just mad brilliant, directed his first episode this season as well. Um, you know, and so again, like I said, it's really exciting to be able to do that. Dean White, who's you know our producing director, uh, and I really set out to create a culture where that's possible, where it's possible to like um, elevate and change and do new things. And and if you want to become a director, you know, you have to really earn it. You have to shadow, which is something that some of the cast has already taken us up on. Mm-hmm. Uh, shadowing a director means, you know, essentially being there from day one of prep all the way through uh, the production of the episode and and seeing the way the sausage is made from beginning to end, which, you know, as actors, oftentimes they don't, certainly the younger ones, they don't realize how much work goes in behind the scenes before we get to action. Yeah, you know? right. Yeah, yeah. And, and how much the scripts evolve and how much work goes into it. And so um, I think it's really been informative, educational for the actors who have done it. Uh, you know, I, I definitely notice like a respect level rising towards me in some instances. Where <laughs> just how sort of insane uh, this job is, you know. They're like, oh, um, Jason doesn't just sit up there in L.A. like twiddling yeah. his thumbs waiting for yeah. us to finish shooting a scene. <laughs> I'm not, just the, I'm not just the asshole who like rewrote their scene the night before. <laughs> right, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, or there's a reason why that had to happen. Right, you know, exactly. That... <laughs> it wasn't just like you one night being like, you know, it'd be great if I tossed that out and did this instead. <laughs> Fortunately, that happens. That, well, you know. <laughs> as long as it gets better, nobody complains. They, <laughs> they, they like, they, at first it's upsetting, but then, you know, they eventually embrace it. Right. So, yeah. <laughs> Sorry. Yeah. So, so Ian will be great. And there are definitely other actors who have shadowed and, um, you know, if we run long enough, we'll have a chance to, I think, get behind the camera too. That's awesome. Yeah. And it's, it's cool that like, there's sort of, you know, openness to growth career yeah. growth within a single show yeah i might even do it <laughs> Ooh. Ooh. well i've talked i've talked about it for a couple seasons now but the the hard part is i mean because i can if i want to because of of my you know because i'm the showrunner uh i probably should take advantage of that because who knows if i'll be able to do that right in the future um i would hope to but you never know and so um, but yet I would have to be away from the room for one oh. episode of all episodes. And so it would have to be like a finale when all the writing was done. And yeah, yeah. And directing a finale is my first ever time behind the camera. A little bit like, you know, having your first at Bappy in the world series. Yeah. Right? Yeah. <laughs> no pressure or anything, but like, don't fuck this up because it's the season finale. Yeah. Exactly. And I know that the crew and the cast would elevate their games for me. So, I mean, I have no doubt about, you know, be, it being good. But also, I would suck at clock management. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Like, that's, that's the <laughs> thing. I would need somebody there, like, to basically pull me to the next thing because, you know, I'm a perfectionist. And if it's not perfect, I'm not moving. 
you know yeah. i would let the i would let the perfect be the enemy of the good to the point of like we didn't make our day you know right and that yeah, yeah. can't happen anyway sorry we're, uh, we're digressing totally <laughs> no it's good i like we i like getting the kind of like you know behind the scenes look at how these things actually work <laughs> yeah all the all the craft stuff is like really yeah. interesting to us are you jason how are you on time we have three questions left are you in a time crunch or can we power through all of them we can power through uh it's 5 30 here I'm, uh where are you guys i'm in portland so i'm same time zone as you i'm in mississippi but i i don't have any i don't have any plans i can keep going <laughs> no, no big friday night plans yeah no. i'm i'm not i don't either i'm good i'm okay. good uh, By the way, I have to put like the abridged version out for people and then like the uncut version of this conversation. This is the exact, <laughs> Jason, this is how long all of our podcasts are. Yeah, no, like this is, this is how they always are. This Your is last one was an hour short. Yeah. <laughs> I'm not making my day. I'm telling you, like it's podcasting is great because it doesn't matter how long we go. Exactly. So, nope. <laughs> introduction, fine for podcasting. <laughs> Uh, okay, so next question is from Tina, who is a capital chick on uh, Twitter. And she is the person who wrote, very recently she wrote that great um, guest piece for Hypable about the 100 and uh, politics, um, which was like a great article. Um, so her, her question kind of is dovetailing with that. Uh, this show is so brilliant at exploring political allegory and themes. In season four, episodes like Heavy Lies the Crown, A Lie Guarded, and The Chosen explored the relationship between leaders and their people in particular. What uh, what themes or perhaps real-world political challenges inspired the way the show depicted leadership in season four? Um, and are there any political themes that you're excited about for season five? Hmm. Well, one of the things I love about science fiction, and I've said this before, is that you can sort of use real world historical, you know, present tense political upheaval uh, as the sort of inspiration for story and, and sort of, you know, elucidate an issue without being preachy about it. Uh -huh. uh, you know, so, so I really, to be honest, I don't even like to politically sort of talk about where, what the issue or the message or the political stance that we're, that we're trying to take uh, what that is in season four you know obviously there was a lot of 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 you know leadership stories taking place i would say though for me you know i don't think season four like there have been situations where we did do like uh ripped from the headlines kind of things you know like we were living through a certain political uh time and and we told a story that wanted to like elucidate that thing, you know? Um, but season four wasn't really like that for me. Season four was about, there's a, like, a, we've already talked about this a little bit, but like we knew the end was coming and how are you going to handle that? Mm -hmm. And it was, was putting each of these characters into that sort of crucible and uh, forcing them to react and deal with it and, you know, illuminating things about them through the way they responded to it. Mm -hmm. uh, that was kind of the inspiration for, for season four more than anything else. Um, season five, you know, season five definitely has 
there, there are political allegories that you can draw uh, looking around the world at, at a situation where, like I said before, there's there's one survivable place and there's two peoples that want it. You know, yeah. how is that work? You know what I mean? Yeah. Uh, and, and, you know, there's a little bit of a is that a two state solution story? Maybe. Yeah. You know, yeah, yeah. Certainly, but that's what I mean about not wanting to really sort of like put too fine a point on where we're drawing our political inspiration from, just because then you're immediately like, you know, kind of suddenly people are looking at the story differently, and I don't want that, you know? Right. Uh, it's, 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 it's not actually an allegory, you know, in that there isn't like a one to one relationship between what's on the screen and, you know, in some situation in the real world. It's, it's right. not that direct. No, it's it's not at all that direct. Yeah, it's just you know, it's just can two groups figure out a way to sort of live together in one place rather than fighting over it and risk destroying it by fighting over it, you know? Right. Mm -hmm. uh, and so and 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 so it becomes more of a of a something almost that we only realize even after we've decided what story we want to tell. Oh, that's a little bit like this, you know? Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah sort of like overtly the point right if sense you know yeah, well, yeah, no. and I think I think that's what you know with with science fiction but really I think with with all literature that kind of draws on you know elements of what's happening in its time I think that's what like what keeps it what keeps things from feeling dated is that they're not locked so specifically to being a metaphor for some incredibly particular like moment in time or political issue that it starts to feel heavy handed. And then, you know, and then it loses its relevance, you know, at some point in the future. I think that like the issues that this show covers are things that are both timely to where we're at right now and things that will feel timely in 10 years, you know, like, and I think it's because like, if you're not, you're not mapping it so specifically to like Pike is Trump or whatever, you know? Um, <laughs> Well, that, I mean, obviously, Pike sort of presaged Trump, so... He did, yeah. Yeah. So, in a way, this is all your fault. <laughs> oh, God. Um, but <laughs> you know, there's something to be said for, like, letting letting the work speak for itself and letting yeah. people interpret the, the, the thing for themselves, because, mm -hmm. you know, I find that it's weird. You know, we live in a world where truth is no longer sort of important, unfortunately, to too many people. It's not about like what the truth is anymore. It's your truth and my truth. And you know, there's the Fox news truth and the MSNBC truth. And like right. nobody just anymore. They, they sort of live in a bubble and they, and they perceive things the way uh, they want to perceive them almost. If that makes sense. I, I feel, oh, yeah. I feel like the hundred, maybe every show, but certainly my experience with the hundred and the audience reaction to it is it's a bit of a Rorschach test, you know? It's like you see it the way you react to it says more about you than it does about me. Yeah. So all I am trying to do, and I think I've probably in the past put myself out there too much. It, this conversation probably is putting myself <laughs> out there too much since we've been talking for three hours. It feel it, it seems maybe three. What time is it? Uh, Five forty-five. Coming up on two, two and a half ish. Yeah. So, you know, like. Generally speaking, uh, I like to talk, obviously, but you know, one of the lessons learned from from the sort of uh, uproar, uproar around season three was just that it's better to let the show speak for itself at times and sort of let the audience interpret 
the story. So listening to meditation is one of my favorite things to do because I'm like, oh, you know, it's it, it was amazing to me to listen to you guys analyze this thing that that we have created, you know, mm -hmm. that's really entertaining for me to sort of <laughs> hear, hear your theories and hear how it's affected you and what worked and what didn't work. Like that to me is like, I can, I can walk for days listening to meditation and have. Oh, <laughs> thank you. <laughs> the same thing goes for like, you know, uh, less so obviously, but like seeing people get outraged by certain stories has been, you know, that hurts, obviously, but it's also fascinating. It's sort mm -hmm. of, you know, again, like I said, it says more about it says more about the people than it does about me to sort of uh, to sum that point up. I feel like it's best sometimes for the creator to, like, keep a low profile and 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 not tell the audience what it means. Yeah. Do you do you think that it that has this helped you sort of by by, I guess, kind of observing the way that people react to different things on the show as they happen and and places where potentially like the reaction might have been like you know totally like unexpected or surprising to you that you're sort of like learning more about who the people are who are watching this show and like um and who who your audience is and like learning to understand them in a different way absolutely for sure i mean we think about you know how stories are going to affect people probably more than than we did when we started that said you know i feel like again and i've said in the past i've said i've made the statement the only person i'm trying to please is me and of course like that was misinterpreted as oh my god i'm such a fucking selfish dick all i care about is myself which of course is not at all what i meant what i meant was as an artist as i'm telling a story i need to i need to like it before i put it out in the world i'm not trying to please mm -hmm. i'm not trying to please you i'm not trying to please the audience. I'm trying to do the best I can to tell the story that I that I want to tell, and hope that I'm bringing you with me. Right. And you know, if I'm not, then people won't watch, or will you know send me mean things on Twitter. And if, <laughs> I, if I do, then they'll watch and they'll you know say nice things on Twitter. And and both are important and 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 valid reactions. You know what I mean? I feel yeah. like. Uh, when artists try and guess what the audience is going to want, you end up with, and by the way, this is going to sound like a, a dig at pop music, but like, I don't like pop music. So it is a dig at pop music. <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm not trying to please the, the, the most people possible. I'm more like alternative, you know, like right. I, I, there's, there's a, there's a music, there's a style of music. This is a style of show. It's not going to appeal to everybody, um, if I and may, that's okay. If I may, and that's okay. If I may make an analogy that uh, the younger portion of our audience will not understand, probably. So you don't want to be the Phil Collins Genesis. You want to be the Peter Gabriel Genesis. If that makes well, sense. <laughs> I feel I feel wounded as an unironic lover of Phil Collins, but I also agree. I totally agree. Listen, first of all, Phil Collins is awesome. I love him, I love him as the drummer in Genesis. Uh -huh. And it's amazing when Peter Gabriel left and suddenly he stood forward in the, and, and had that voice and became the front man. But oh, yeah, yeah. I mean, that's like, yeah. Definitely, definitely I preferred the Peter Gabriel... 
And, and it's, a perfect, it's a perfect analogy, I think, perhaps, too, because, like, that's not to say there's anything wrong with Peter Gabriel or the, his version of Genesis. It's just, like, that Genesis is way more accessible than Peter Gabriel ever would be, because that's not Peter Gabriel. Right. I mean, you know, you get when you try to, when you, tr and I don't, by the way, Phil Collins probably was just being Phil Collins and. Oh, for sure. It, no, he wasn't like pandering. That's just like the kind of thing that he does, you know? Yeah. And just felt a little less edgy than, than Peter Gabriel. Yeah, and yeah, so, yeah. you know, became more popular. Who knows yeah. what, why things hit the way they do. Mm -hmm. uh, I think it's, you know, again, nothing against it, but when you try to appeal to as many people as possible, you end up with things that most of the time aren't great. You end up with bubblegum stuff, you know? And, and, and so I think the perception of the hundred, because we are on the CW and the perception of the CW when we first started has certainly changed. Oh, for you know? sure. Yeah. The truth is Mark has been fearless in, in sort of, and amazing as a collaborator in the sense of sort of letting me, so giving me enough rope to hang myself with. You know? Yeah. <laughs> like, it, it's, it, this is not a, a network that interferes with the creative process. They let their showrunners run their shows. You know, they, they weigh in certainly uh, on certain things that mean that are that um, that they feel strongly about for sure. I mean, I get notes on everything still, um, but it's not like, if if there's something I feel strongly about, nine times out of ten, they will defer to to me, which I think is incredibly um, supportive and and nurturing and great. I'm grateful for that. Um, and so you know that's why the show is as dark as it is because Mark you know allowed said early on you know it can be darker. I I've told this story before where it, 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 we killed 300 people in that in the culling in episode five. And he called me and he's like, really great episode, but you know, you could go darker. I'm like, wait, <laughs> and you know, we figured out ways to, but like, kind of like, okay, the governor is off. The leash is off. Let's see what we do with this, you know, with this idea. So, um, you know, and I, all, all thanks go to Mark and Peter uh, Roth at the studio too. I mean, it's been really a wonderful experience working for those guys and for, for those two places. Uh, and, you know, it'll continue. I feel very good about our chances for season six and beyond. Yeah. You know, like, I, I, I know you can't tell us anything about, like, where that's actually at. But do you know, like, when you'll know? Is that something that you can tell us? Or is that all kind of, it's all under wraps and, and we'll know when we find out? I mean, I have a sense of when it, when, if there will, were to be an announcement, it could happen, but you know, I mean, we haven't even aired yet. So yeah, I would be surprised if it would be, you know, before then, um, you know, upfronts are shortly thereafter. So we would have uh -huh. to relatively quickly, Yeah, uh, you know, so, but who knows? I mean, it could be sooner. It could never happen. I, 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 I I'm not sitting here saying, I know it's going to happen. I, I feel, yeah, yeah. I feel like. Them expanding programming to Sunday night, yeah, uh, was a was it certainly like the bubble expanded? Do you mm -hmm. know? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so you know they made they they're making a lot of pilots though, so you you just never know. Is this the year where like every one of their pilots is awesome? Last year, unfortunately, too many of their fucking pilots were good because that's why my pilot didn't get made. Um, oh, <laughs> oh <was> no. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, 
Not a I'm case bitter. where a rising tide uh, lifts all boats, I guess. Yeah. Well, <laughs> listen, we've had such a good run, and and I've been playing with house money since like season one. That metaphor <laughs> for people who don't know means you know you go to the casino with a hundred dollars and you win a couple hundred bucks right away, and now you're playing with your winnings. Ah, right. yes. Mm-hmm. Feel like. I'm blessed and grateful and to have done this for five years, you know, it's like I've been making this show longer than I went to college. (laughs) So I was not on the five-year program, like so many of my, (laughs) Um, but yeah, so it's been, it's been a great ride. If it were to end, it would be something that I would, you know, obviously be proud of forever. And if it doesn't and it keeps going, you know, I'm still creatively inspired by this world and by these characters and by these incredible people that I get to work with who, you know, force me to be on my A game all the time because they're so good. Um, so yeah, I mean, it's all, it's all good. Um, so our next question is from Taylor um, and she wants to know what was uh, the most challenging episode episode to write and shoot and why was it a challenge and if you don't want to talk about season five we could do like anything from the past so it's not spoilery okay hmm. i can actually go through every season and talk about which was the hardest and easiest <laughs> Ooh, excellent excellent it's, or, or the hardest the, the, the truth is they're all hard because <laughs> you know this show we are always on the edge we are always pushing there's never an episode where it's like, oh, yeah, that was an easy episode to make. You know, like every day is 12 or more hours and we are in the elements a lot of the times and the elements are unforgiving. It's a hard show to make. Um, and so there's that. Uh, by far, the premiere and the finale are the hardest because they're the biggest. You know, we're, the, mm. we're they're the fullest. We're trying to do the most in usually the same amount of time. As we have in another episode, uh, we've been really lucky that Dean White has directed uh, all of those premieres and finales, except for the pilot, um, because he is, you know, incredibly efficient um, as a director. Like he he gets more setups per episode than, you know, by at least a third that than any other director. He's just he's just that good. And, and the shot making is is that good. So. We've been we've been really lucky uh, because of that in the premieres and the finales. But other than that, um, to be specific, uh, season one, episode four, uh, which was the episode where Charlotte takes the swan dive. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. That was really, really hard. We were out in the rain. By the way, I'm in Santa Monica. Okay, (laughs) (laughs) I'm comfortable. I get calls in the middle of the night sometimes. And that's those are the episodes that are usually the hardest. Like I got a call that night, 2 a.m. from set, from the writers saying, you know, we're not going to be able to do the scene where she's on the cliff because it's too dangerous. It's raining. And and I was like, you know, I, I said what I said. We obviously did the scene and, and it was fine. We never will do something that's too dangerous. Um, but it was pouring down rain and they were shooting on a cliff. Oh, you know? yeah, yeah. And it was night shoots are agony because they're literally they're shooting all night. They're shooting until the sun. You know, most of the time you're shooting in the day, like racing for daylight. But night shoots, it's the opposite. You're like, get it done before the sun rises, you know. Yeah. And so those are these hard episodes. So season uh, episode uh, four, season one was hard. Um, 
the finale of season two was just, you know, we, we built a water tank in our parking lot for the boat that Jaha oh, and Murphy. Oh, yeah, yeah. Oh, my God, I forgot about that. Yes. Yeah. When Jaha threw the kid into the, <laughs> into the water. Oh. Yes. <laughs> An iconic moment. <laughs> yes. We were shooting that in the parking lot in the middle of the night in January. It was oh, miserably cold. I think I might have been sleeping in my trailer. <laughs> I remember being woken up. Like, Dean came pounding on my door, and he's like, come on, you got to see this. It's awesome. And so I went out and, like, you know, you know, because for the most part, for me, I'm like, I wrote it. I toned the director to the within an inch of his life, which means I, like, go through every beat of the episode. And I was there for, like, the I'm there for the first few takes and to make sure the scene feels right. And then I can go, usually I go to my trailer and, like, work on a cut or work on a rewrite or take a nap, call my kids, you know. Um, so, but that was a particularly tricky episode. Uh, season three, again, episode four. For some reason, episode fours are, are always really big and, and really, you know, tricky. That was the episode where Alexa... And Rowan had the sword fight, and where oh, Lincoln, yeah, yeah. And, oh yeah, yeah, and where Lincoln, you know, tried to stop the group from going out to attack the army, uh, and and so that was, I think that's what happened, right? I, I believe that's so. what. I think so, yeah. So any episode that has like two huge stories is always going to be, you know, difficult. Like we can pull off one huge story and one really good character story, but when we get two huge stories. Uh, a lot of times we have to sacrifice some of the hugeness of one of them. Um, that episode was supposed to be like a full-on like riot around the gate, and that had to come way back and became what it became. But it was a great episode, tricky, um, directed by Ed Freeman, who's one of my favorite directors and favorite people. Might be in the office somewhere, actually, right now, I think. <laughs> um, season four, I wrote these down so that I would be a little bit more uh, specific. Nice. Three episodes at once in January. Oh, yeah. Okay. So season four was tricky because, like I said, we had some production problems. And so we were shooting in terms of, like, having to shut down for illnesses and, and weather and forest fires. And it was crazy. Anything that could go wrong went, went wrong. Um, and so by January, we were shooting literally parts of four different episodes. Oh, my God. You know, from one, day, from one day to the next. So, you know, it really challenges the cast. Because they don't remember, you know, what what they're supposed to be doing emotionally from, oh, yeah, we're picking this up from episode six. Oh, you know, it's really, really high level of difficulty shit. Yeah. Um, but they pulled it off brilliantly. Um, and then this season, you know, I don't want to talk too much about this season, but let's just say the finale, 12 and 13, is a two-parter. And we kind of cross-boarded them, which means we shot parts of one on the schedule of the other. And it was, it was hard <laughs> to, say, to say the least. Though that was hard, and a lot of times it co it corresponds with the weather. I mean, the weather was just really bad, and yeah, so yeah. You know, trying to do the most work, the most complicated stuff when the weather is the worst. You yeah, know? yeah. Uh, at finale time, so. That's always hard. Anyway, that's my long-winded answer to that question. <laughs> I think about that all the time. Like, there are some episodes where I just, like, sort of remember. I think it was uh, episode – it was in season 
three, the episode where they're on the beach, like right before they go out to see, uh, out to Luna. And, um, and, uh, 12, it was a 13. Yeah. Yeah. 13. So I just remember watching those scenes because you could see that it was pouring on the beach and that it was cold and like, and it was like bad. It was like, you know, sort of apparently bad enough that I just kept like almost being pulled out of it, out of it and thinking like that poor cast must just be like freaking <laughs> like, and actually Claire and I made a huge joke about, I, I remember on that episode about like how quickly, uh, Octavia got a fire started given how like soaked that wood was would actually be like in real life we were like we call bs on yep. that fu- on that beach fire hike <laughs> oh we've been so proud of her she learned something from earth skills i know right <laughs> <laughs> you know it's funny i always say that the show looks better the worse the weather is yeah and yeah. it's it's definitely true it's also true that it, it's more miserable for the cast and the crew in particular the crew i mean the crew is yeah. out there unshielded for those hours at least the actors you know can go and get warm in between uh stuff you know and yeah, they're yeah. you know and by the way i say this it's miserable for them but again i'm in santa monica okay so it's like <laughs> I, yeah, it's a lot of them are canadian they might be fine that's true when i go to set, when I go to set which isn't nearly enough, but on the premieres and the finales, I'm usually there. And, you know, again, finale time, it's freezing cold. I am notoriously like, I'm in the tent with the, with the, you know, Michael Blundell, the DP, uh, watching on the monitors in there. And bring, out, they bring out the Rothenberg heater, which is like, <laughs> I'm not proud. I'm not too, I'm not, I, I'm not going to lie. <laughs> You have to, you have to like, you know, take advantage of the uh, advantages of your position, right? Yeah, that's true. <laughs> I'm from Michigan. I went to Wisconsin, so like, I had my share of cold weather. But I've lived out here for like 20 years, and my blood is thin. I, yeah. I like. Oh, I feel that. I mean, I'm from Wisconsin. Too. I'm from Madison. I think we've talked about. It. And like, but, but living in Mississippi, even for five years, I'm like, I'm a total wimp. I go home for Christmas and I'm like, I can't handle this. <laughs> oh, yeah. No, it, and it happens so fast. My brother lives in L.A. and and he like, I think within, you know, like, like two years or something, he came back and he was always like, I'm cold. And we're just like, Christopher, it's like, it's, it's rain. It's like 60 degrees and raining. But he was just like, you know, you just like your system gets used to what yep. it's used to. It's just- He's to wearing being able to like wear shorts on Christmas and we were like what the hell yeah. <laughs> so anyway yes I am uh I'm a bit of a pussy when it comes to the crew <laughs> so, so and I you know and and my my crew knows it and uh takes care of me very very well <laughs> do they also politely roast you about it or are they not nice <laughs> uh no I mean not, not to my face okay uh, okay <laughs> But it might happen. I'm not sure if that's better or worse. (laughs) That's true. I assume, assume, you know, listen, nobody, everybody talks shit about the boss sometimes. Of course, yes. It's it's a fact of life. But, uh, you know, I'm also, I'm also, I work very, very hard on the show and they all know that. So it's not like, not like I'm sitting in LA sort of like taking it easy, making their lives miserable. Yes. (laughs) <laughs> just, I'm just warm looking at my beach view like... <laughs> thinking of ways to make them miserable <laughs> snowstorm into this episode <laughs> okay uh, alright last question uh, 
And this is from Anya, uh, at A-N-J-A-A-X-X. I don't know how to say that. I think it's just a version of Anya. Um, she makes uh, fan videos, and I think she's the one who made that amazing Blake siblings video um, from, like, oh. a week, few weeks ago. Oh, yeah. Ago. Yeah, that's her. She's brilliant. Like, she makes amazing uh, edits. So her question is, where do you draw your inspiration from for writing? Is it music, films, other TV shows, maybe even fan art, or does it just hit you in random moments? Hmm. Um, well, it's funny, you know, I used to believe that as a writer, you need to like live your life and experience as much as possible. And in order to have something to write about when I was, when I was younger, uh, and I tried that for a number of years. <laughs> um, now that I have a show, I mean, the truth is like movies are incredibly informative, inspirational for me. I love music. I listen to music all the time when I'm writing. Uh, not lyrics. Lyrics yeah. kind of screw me up. So yeah, I'm um, the same way. You know, scores. A lot of times I'll listen to. Uh, Tree now gives me the score that he's working on for the episodes that he's you know ahead in post working on. So I'll I'll listen to the hundred score a lot. Um, but the show itself, when you're when you're again like show running is so all consuming time wise. I don't have time anymore to like live the life so I could experience things. So I can write about them, you know, I mean, it's either show or family. I'm yeah. either with my family or I'm working on the show. And unfortunately, most of the time it's the show like the, the show is so I, I it's hard to even put into it, it to quantify there is it's never done. There's always something to do. And so I go home and I have stuff to do and I wake up in the morning. It's, it's four in the morning and I'm working on the show. It's just literally uh, endless and all the time. And I'm not complaining cause it's, you know, the dream job also, but the show has to be inspirational to me. Otherwise I couldn't do it, you know? Yeah. So I'm inspired still by the world of the show, by these actors, uh, who challenge me every day to try to like feed them material that's good enough for them. Mm -hmm. Uh, you know, and so that is true. The truth, the truth is that that is what, as after five seasons, you know, it is, uh, again, it's like a positive feedback loop. You know what I mean? It's like, like we work really hard to create this show and then the show gives back to us by inspiring us to like continue to make the show, if that makes sense. Yeah, no, that makes sense. Yeah. I, and it's a luxurious position to be in, you know, I mean, I, I definitely, uh, I definitely still love being in the heads of those characters and um, you know, it's easy now for me to write them. It's kind of always been like, you know, it, it's tricky to find the voice, you know, sometimes, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, but you know, after five years, it's easy to find each of their voices. So, and you've been doing it so long. It's like you, that's why the show for me has to change from season to season. Like every story is a totally new movie because I need, um, I need to be excited about the about the adventure about this season's mm -hmm. yarn. Um, so you know that's what keeps me going. If that yeah. answers the question, I'm not sure if it does or not. I think it does. Yeah. yeah. Great. Awesome. Awesome. Yay. Well, Yay. <laughs> we did it, and it only took three hours. <laughs> Yay! The list. We got through every question. We yes, did. we did. <laughs> Good. You never had to flag. You flagged a couple times. 
Like she threw a flag at me a couple times. But oh yeah, I she told rolled her. Eyes. She rolled her eyes a lot. <laughs> <laughs> that's yeah. a that's a yellow flag. <laughs> yeah, that's okay. We'll be cutting that. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you so yeah. much for taking so much time to talk to us and answer uh, fans' questions and give us a little picture into how the how the show gets made. We really appreciate it. Yeah. This was yeah, so much fun. You. And thank you guys for doing the show and being such sort of like, you're, you're just, you're so positive and your energy is so kind of contagious and great. I really do appreciate you. Both. Ah, thank you so much. Thank you. We, we, we... try hard. <laughs> Good. All right. We'll keep it up. And, you know, I hope you like the season and trailers coming. WonderCon's coming. We're going to do something cool for the audience at WonderCon. I hope, hope it's released publicly. I'm not sure it will be or not. Um, and then the show's right after that. So yeah, season, awesome. season six, you guys, season, it's going right. to be totally different. What's the, the people... community tagline? Six seasons in a movie. Yeah. <laughs> six seasons in a coffin. Six seasons in a coffin. Well, oh, oh the other one, so hashtag, uh, hugs and death and hashtag six seasons in a coffin. Hugs and death. Yeah. <laughs> hugs and death. Yeah, that's the name of autobiography hugs and death it's sort of you should start signing your emails that way yeah like hugs and death jason <laughs> yes i love it i love it thank you guys so much. <laughs> all right well thank you guys so much and uh we hope uh we might be able to get you back sometime in the middle of this of season five airing so we can maybe talk about more of that stuff in detail um when some of it is, you know, sure. we're allowed to I'll, know. I'll be, we'll be, I'll be listening to make sure I'll be listening to make sure you guys like it before I decide if I want to come back. <laughs> Excellent. That makes sense. All right. <laughs> Fair enough. Go enjoy your weekends. Enjoy your weekends, guys. You too. You too. All right. Bye. Thanks. Talk bye to you later. Guys.